I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. My guest today is Joseph Mahon, the owner and chef of Jackson's Chicken Tenders in Fullerton, California. During the time of the recording, we sat down in Burger Parlor. Because of COVID, things changed. Joseph, just like thousands of other small business owners, is trying to keep his doors open. So rebranding was done. Let's take a quick break for a sponsor before getting into Joseph, the career, the chef, and more. Just a good conversation, podcast number 10. I'm sitting in Burger Parlor in downtown Fullerton with my dear friend, Joseph, but I will say Chef Joseph Mahon. Oh, thank you very much. Yes. I love saying that I have a friend who's a chef because it kind of immediately puts you in another stratosphere like doctor. <laughs> I, yeah, I wish... I wish we were kind of really in that stratosphere. Well, you're probably making way more money than most doctors nowadays. Um, yes. Without the problems. Uh, they're just different problems. They're kind of more mundane kind of entry-level problems. You know, a lot less stress, though. We have to make people happy and probably just hang our hat on consistency. You know, we have probably uh, some doctor friends, but they all share that, which is a lot of pressure in my opinion uh, and I don't see him very often so I won't change places well I'm so happy that we're sitting in your beautiful restaurant in Fullerton thanks I, I mean I've known you for 35 years we have your son over here doing drawing I, I've known you longer than he's only 10 and I've known you longer than before he was born like he, you were younger than 10 yeah that's crazy pretty amazing and now you're cooking food cooking food been cooking it for about 25 years so tell me that story because we used to play hoop together remember yeah. that going one-on-one -on -one playing ball yeah. and when we were much and younger football on the street football on the streets when we were able to do that and matt had a lowered uh honda accord gray <laughs> Uh, with every tape you could ever imagine that I really enjoyed. And he always had the hottest Air Jordans oh, on the block. And I'm so sorry to introduce you to rap music. Though. Oh, man. Ice-T. Ice-T Power was the first one for me, I think. <laughs> and then uh, Public Enemy. I, I, I should probably call your parents and apologize. <laughs> no, actually, I play it now in the, in the stores. I know, in the stores. Yeah. But I'm sure your parents were like, what the hell is being played upstairs? Yeah, exactly. I don't think they assumed it was you, though. <laughs> oh, thank God. It could have been a couple other characters that were around the neighborhood. Good. They probably think of first. <laughs> Matt was pretty charming. How did you fall in love with cooking? Uh, it was random. I was kind of a more of a troubled uh, junior hire, and I uh, got a lot of detentions. And <laughs> my dad's solution was to ground me. So <clears throat> for about wait a minute, your father really? Yeah, no. exactly. The Iron Fist, <laughs> yeah. boom. Uh, he grounded me probably for about eight or nine months, and I used to watch a cooking show called Great Chefs, Great Cities on PBS oh. and uh, I always had kind of an easy uh, it was very easy to be creative very easy in, in kind of any aspect of creativity for me and I just thought that it was a good fit so going through Great Chefs, Great Cities. Um, now, now what time was that show on? Probably 4 to 4.30, 4 to 5. Thank God you didn't watch Bob Ross because this would be a whole different <laughs> podcast. You know what? I do paint. I do all kind of creative aspects, but uh, I think cooking was the one I gravitated to the most. And uh, from that point on, I just said I was going to be a chef and uh, I was going to own restaurants. Kind of pissed off my parents initially. <laughs> you know, because... Because you were young. You were a teenager. Uh, right? Yeah starts when this yeah, about starts 13 14 and then you know I had a lot of influence probably from my grandparents that were you know 
the Italians. Right. Um, they really. That's on mom's side. Yeah, and they hung their hat on food, and you know, it sounds very cliche, but my grandmother had probably about 400 cookbooks. She had kind of all the cooking uh, utensils, pots, and pans. Uh, no one else had, or any kitchen I've ever went to other than hers. Right. So uh, they were very encouraging. My grandparents, and they actually were very supportive. Um, and actually, I think that was kind of the seed uh, that was planted, and they just kept watering it and watering it. And uh, I, I was given all of her cookbooks. She gave all of her pots and pans to me instead of my mom. There was oh. a little bit of uh, favoritism, I think, going on there. But, you know, if I reflect now as we're talking, I think uh, they, had, they had a really, really good spark to kind of that initial interest. Now, when did you start cooking maybe around the house for mom and dad or decide, like, I'm whipping up this? I uh, started cooking probably eighth grade. Yeah. Wow. Eighth grade, yeah. started whipping out the cookbooks and just got down to it. Was mom cool with that? Like, hey, Joseph's doing dinner tonight. Well, <laughs> you know, a side note is she's actually stopped cooking in, I think, third or fourth grade. And right, because I never saw the kitchen, like, exploding. Never. Right. <laughs> it was never like, there's, there's your mom just whipping it up. Boys, you want some? Yeah. It was kind of fend for yourself. Yeah. You know, if I think back a little bit earlier, you know, my both both parents were working and when I'd come home, I knew how to make scrambled eggs. I think when I was in second grade, I knew how to make quesadillas. I was a top ramen master. Okay. <laughs> we we would infuse or, or or improve that top ramen base like in any capacity we could. I, me and uh, a buddy of mine, Adam, who lived down the street. But um, Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, so I'd have to take it back to maybe second grade when I first learned how to do scrambled eggs. So I was cooking by myself very, very early on. And that was based on my mom's decision not to participate in feeding her family. <laughs> now, all jokes aside, they did take us out to dinner. Yes. More often than not. But um, that was probably it. But that's, that's sometimes a lot of the lifestyle in the house. Like, we're just eating out. Yeah. So we would all group together at 6 o'clock. We'd go over to, you know, their staples that they'd enjoy. And we'd just bang them out. Yeah, that was it. No cleanup, come back home, and then be on to the next day. Right. So where do you decide, I think this could be something? Because um, you, you still know, got high school, and you can always change your mind and be an astronaut, a fireman, or whatever. Yeah. Fall in love, and then she takes you off to where? Yeah, you know, I, I just think it's the decision I made, and I was going to see it through regardless of the circumstances. Did That's you have it. any jobs? Like, did uh, you just, like, start working at Denny's? Uh, no, so my, so actually, my mom got me my first job, I think, when I was uh, 16, and it was at a tea house in Whittier, and it was this old English lady, and um, I think within, like, four or five months, she, she trusted me enough where uh, I got to run the kitchen, and it was like, you know, it was pastas, minor catering some tea sandwiches, some, some kind of introduction to the kitchen where you're dealing with heat, sanitation, um, and all kind of the basis, sure. basic, I'm sorry, that at the basis, the basics of kind of the kitchen life. And um, she was an older lady, so it was nice she gravitated to me because I can help with just about anything. But again, I had the attitude and the approach of, you know, a long-term plan. So I think people can kind of understand that initially. And I think when you kind of portray that to any individual you're working for, I think they they gravitate to it and they, they will open up as many doors as you allow them to open. Wow, that is, that is a good spot to have been in with her. Yeah, and then I leveraged that uh, into uh, Mulberry Street, which was my first real line cooking position. Really, at Mulberry Street? Yeah, like 18. That's awesome. I yeah. had no idea. Yeah.
You were cooking some of my food back yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. Because you never see the chef if you're buried in the back. No, and the chef's still there. His name's Joe. He's been there for about, <laughs> I think, 30 years. Wow. My memory serves me correctly. And I. And that's rare for chefs to sit in a spot for that long. Well, yeah, and I had, you know, I still have conversations with Dennis and Brandon. Brandon's his son that's taken over the uh, restaurant itself. But, you know, I learned a lot indirectly and directly because they were able to hold on to their staff for a long period of time. And that's probably the root of all their success for the last 35 years. Is to keep them. Is to keep your team. And, you know, if they altered from Joe, who, who would know, who knows where they'd be right now. So working with uh, that chef, um, whether whatever it encompasses, they've been able to provide. So from Mulberry, where do you go? Or, how, um, or, what, or what's, your, what's your job at Mulberry? What do you, what, like, do they put you in charge of what? Um, I was Fry. Okay. Basically, there's just two people there. There's right. one that does 80% of the work, and then there's one that does 20, and I okay. did about the 20. So I did salads, uh, desserts, some pastas, um, and then mostly all the appetizers. Because, you know, for the, the regular folk, mm -hmm. it's, it's behind the swinging door, so we don't know. Yeah how it works who's the who's the grunts who's the sergeants and who's you know the generals in the end so when you say 20 percent people still think that seems like a lot yeah it was a good introduction to thinking um what i was doing had a little bit more influence than i thought <laughs> but um it, it, it definitely solidified kind of the route i wanted to go uh, on a side note when you're applying for the culinary institute of america they needed you to have at least i think 16 to 18 months worth of uh, on-job experience wow so the purpose also had um, an end goal in mind which was to fill out that application and have a couple references which was the tea shop and then mulberry street okay and then once that was completed we kind of moved forward and moved to new york so was that how did you get culinary institute on your radar to be like that's where i'm going um so i, I came consumed with the chef world and restaurant world and i did as much research as i could um i really did every biography i could on every chef that was kind of noted in nationally or regionally okay and most of those came up with the culinary institute of america wow so that was easy Where's the Culinary Institute of America? <laughs> How do I apply? Yeah. It's not down the street? It's, oh, it's in New York. No problem. Sure. <laughs> Where's the plane ticket? <laughs> yeah, so it was a real easy decision. Now, was that research now? Is that pre-internet or internet or? Pre-internet. You know, a lot of the... Um, Amazon was uh, most of the cookbooks when they were only having books to sell. I bought a bunch of cookbooks. And again, I just used the initial internet uh, at that particular time. And um, again, just did a lot of research, kind of connected all the dots and decided, well, if I'm going to be these guys, then I should probably go on this route. Right. Now, what's that process? Is it a, a application, but is there an interview process? I mean, obviously you're not interview sending in a portfolio, a portfolio, but I mean, how you does know, that work? You know, it was interesting. Uh, I, I just think they, they wanted you to understand what you're getting into and you had to do the essay and there was a lot of other criteria and boxes that needed to be checked versus today. I, you know, it's interesting because Culinary Institute of America, there was very limited amount of culinary or vocational schools for uh, that particular skill set. And they've been flooded recently, probably over the last 20 years. And all those standards and all that criteria, I don't know how 
I don't think it's improved. I think it's actually decreased. But it was pretty hard to get in there at the time. Okay. Um, but again, essays, uh, interviews, um, and then the on-job experiences followed with those references that you had. Uh, I think kind of solidified that. And then making sure you could pay the tuition. <laughs> <laughs> it's always about the tuition. So what we did too is uh, to show my parents that I was serious. I took basically all those paychecks from Mulberry Street and um, my mom was working on behalf of Dean Witter, which was a brokerage at the time. Right. And yep. she she got in, I think, before the crash of one one crash before 2000, right. I think. And um, oh, yeah, the, the dot com crash. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so. She she I think she tripled tripled the money. So that was good my, for mom. Yeah, good for mom. And then from there, we doubled down and put it all towards the first installment of the tuition, and then uh, we're able to get a loan and kind of move forward from there. Now, is that a regular school? Like, it starts in September, or is it semesters, or how do they... It's, it's year-round. Okay. And but, but they you, do it in blocks. Okay, so what's the block period? So, do you know you're going in the spring, or I'm going in winter? It's every three weeks. Every three weeks? Wow. They are rotating you through. Yep, they have a they have a great system and a and a great process there that works year round. So, you know, the other aspect of the Culinary Institute of America is it's a great draw uh, from an architectural standpoint. It sits on the Hudson River. Oh, it's gorgeous. Um, yeah, it's kind of real picturesque. So, um, they need those restaurants open at all times. <laughs> right. So every three weeks you have a new crew that's endorsing either the French Escoffier room, which I think has changed since I was there. Um, the Italian Covita olive oil place or another sponsored restaurant right, now sure. yeah. <laughs> by a big corporation. <laughs> but they had they don't have the ability to close down. So I think that served as their function. Okay. Was not closing these restaurants that are generating income from a tourist perspective. Because we used to have probably four or five buses a day be dropped off. They'd take the tour, the whole dog and pony show. Right. I mean they have, you know, we're almost like, <laughs> like they, they they had a they had these big windows where you could you watch know, you guys watch work us like we're a bunch of, of zoo animals. Yeah. 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 Well, you basically were yeah, part we of the were. entertainment. Yeah, of yeah. course. We're going by now the salad bar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you see one of these guys cut, Just cut the salad. The, yeah, romaine lettuce. Yeah. God bless him. <laughs> yeah, so that's how it worked. Uh, how big was your class? Um, probably... 45, 50 people. Wow. Every yeah. three weeks? Every three weeks. But on average, something like that? Yeah. That is crazy. Yeah. They are just putting through people through the meat grinder. Can yeah. I say that? Meat yeah. grinder's <laughs> right, man. You know, uh, it was interesting. So what's a typical time period? You serve a year? Or is it six um, months? Year and a half. Year and a half is typical. Year and a half, but you have a six-month six externship. Okay. Yeah, because then you start getting farmed out. Yeah, you get farmed out. Really? It's like you the, get farmed out. Yeah. Definitely. Um, but it depends on what farm you want to join too. You know, there's you, the interesting part was it's still the 80/20 rule. You know, when I went there, I thought I'd find as many people as um, driven or ambitious or um, they had a plan. 80% of them were there because either they watched the Food Network show or their mom wanted them to go, and they didn't really have a lot of interest in making sure that this was the first step in many steps to executing the master plan. Right, because I got to imagine it's got to be uber competitive. Yeah. You've got to be all in and have a fire. Yeah. And if, if it, you don't, you're going to fall by the wayside real quick. Well, it's easy to, too. 
It's very, I mean, there's all these kind of steps to filter you out. Now, what's an average day? Um, average day, you either picked day or night. And, um, you know, you had half the day off that you okay. could do whatever you want. And then you did either the other half uh, for schooling. And it was, you know, from sauces to meat to um, composed dishes, um, they health, sanitation, health, nutrition, and all the other kind of boxes that need to be checked off, I think, for an associate's and or bachelor's degree now that they offer. Okay. Um, now, and how do they break that down? Do they say, okay, like, and this is chicken, and this is beef? I mean, how, yeah, it gets, how like, right? Cause, it gets basic, man. It's, it's, but, but I'm sure that's needed, right? I think if you don't have two brain cells that work, I don't know if it's really required, but um, they do. But you don't do. want to be surprised and be like, I had no idea that salt doesn't work with this. Yeah, but you know, I, I still think it's on you as a person to understand that. I, you know, if somebody's, if you need someone to teach you that, <laughs> you need to pay, you know, the 60 grand or 80 grand or whatever, you, you, you need to be doing something else, man. <laughs> right. Yeah, so for those, for those type of classes, I mean, they're kind of you're on autopilot, but um, I just didn't think very much of them. That's why right. I probably can't remember right. all of them. <laughs> you know, I remember the restaurants and I remember kind of European cuisine or some of the other types of cuisine, but I really thought the learning was on everything else that's associated with the school. Um, okay. the, the people that were there teaching that had, you know, the, the chops or the feathers in their hat from either, you know, we had one that was the executive chef of the White House. I mean, obviously you want to, you know, buddy up to him, sure. figure out what he knows or ask him as many questions as possible. Or people that have worked in New York City under some of the best chefs uh, for the previous generation. Those are guys you want to buddy up to. Uh, we had a culinary Olympic team, too. I mean, I, do I donated my time after uh, school at nighttime to help out with uh, the Olympic team just to figure out what they do different, how they work, what's their approach, what's their mindset, because I thought that was more important than what you could find in a book. Wow. Was that, was that your first trip in New York? Yeah. Yeah. And we're in Hyde Park, New York, so right. we're a little bit in a rural area. But um, but still, that's going across country. It's New York City or New York. Yeah. You yeah. know? I thought it was very exciting. I, th I thought whatever we have to do to get the plan done is going to be required, and we got to do it. Real simple. Prior to that, so I'd have a nighttime um, classes, but I used to work two jobs in the morning. So my first job was the gym. What? Okay. And the gym was an easy job because it was, you're employed by the school. So I'd show up there at six and probably, you know, sleep for two hours with my cookbook in front of me. <laughs> oh, Jesus. But what I found out too was uh, there was a bunch of uh, culinary professors that had a lot of, a lot of chops and uh, they would work out in the morning. So I was able to form some good relationships with them. And then the second job after those three hours was another three hours in the video library. And this was pre-internet um, pre where YouTube had literally every cooking channel you could ever think of, but they had literally a library I thought was the most valuable asset of all video techniques. And then literally every chef you looked up to previous current uh, doing some type of cooking demonstration at the school because every three weeks we had a, a famous chef or somebody who's really established within the market uh, come to that school and then show a cooking technique wow. and when you're there you, you can show up but usually life gets in the way 
these guys are hung over. They don't want to hang out. They don't want to learn. They're fried. They do something else. So I literally took notes and watched every video in there. Wow. And the reason I was able to do that was because no one walked in that video library. Are you kidding? No. Not at all. Jeez. So again, just a different approach. Right. Now, where do you think you got that approach, that fire to understand like, okay, I'm laser focused on this. You think you got that from mom and dad or is that just something burned into you? Just burned into me. Just making sure that I complete what I written, I, I wrote down. You right. know, most of the, and again, I, I kind of wrote down the list at 18 of what I wanted to do and I've done most of all of it. That's fantastic. I'm a big, I'm a big, it's very, very important, you know, writing down the goals. I think once you write them down, they, they're written into your mind in some capacity. I think your mind just gravitates to it. And you see it, you're going to focus on it and do it. Big believer, seeing. You know, and I learned that through basketball and through sports, you know, subconscious type of aspects where, you know, you're, you're training your mind, you're preparing, um, you're practicing in your mind, you see it in your mind. I think I, think I kind of took that from um, all the years I played basketball and I just applied it to uh, more of a career-oriented plan. Who knew all those games of basketball were going to pay off? They paid off in some capacity, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it at the time. <laughs> right. But, you know, it, you know, those type of team sports, you know, have, uh, I think they're priceless because they teach you how to work with in a group. Um, and then if... Understand a role, like there's... They, I, I believe that 100%. They, they teach you. Yeah. Double down on your strengths. Understand your weaknesses, be okay with your weaknesses, try to improve them in some capacity, but really double down on your strengths, have a plan and serve a role and the function within the group. Right. Because I've never met a a rich hermit at all. (laughs) You know, you're going to have to work with a group of people. You're going to have to offer value in some capacity, and you're going to have to offer something that could complement the rest of the group. Right. So at your time there at the Institute in New York... Where do you find yourself gravitating to? Is there a food or a, a, a region, a style? Where do you start to find a niche? My roommate told me about a guy named Danielle Balud because I didn't know much about New York. And Danielle okay. Balud at the time um, was like with Jean George um, and David Boulay. And those three guys for me in French cuisine, which was the most... Um, popular cuisine for you know four star or three Michelin star restaurants right. were that, that those were it. So I did my research on Danielle. <clears throat> once he showed, once I did my research on Danielle Balud, I um, went down to New York and went with my girlfriend at the time, and we just kind of surveyed the Upper East Side and found out where they were. And then the next week, I gave. Uh, probably about eight, nine restaurants a call. Told them I want to work for free on Saturday. And um, now is that normal in the food industry? I- um, no, but the research I did from the guys that had the chops, the guys that were established, they just—that's what they did. So I gave. I'd go, hey, can I speak to the executive chef? And somebody would actually give me a phone. The phone to the executive chef it was crazy. <laughs> I thought, wow, this is easy. Yeah. And then I just said, hey, man, I want to work for free. Someone would just say, get the hell out of here. Someone would hang up. And then um, one from Cafe Blue, um, he said, okay, come in on Saturday. And I came in on Saturday. And um, from there, I ended up uh, working there, I think, every other week. And then what I started doing was I started going to other places around the city on Saturdays. And... Um, 
finding out what they did, uh, ingredients, techniques. And I wasn't around the chef. They'd put me downstairs right. peeling onions or peas. But the guys on the front line know a lot because they're producing the product. So, you you know, you take a disgruntled cook who's pissed off, overwhelmed, stressed. You know, you'd be sure. his friend and they're, you know. Let's talk. Yeah, and there's airing out exactly the ins and outs and all the intangibles that you're probably not expecting from a school to give you. Okay. That's interesting. I I would not have thought just to pick up the phone and be like, I can work for free. I can peel a potato. <laughs> come on down. Yeah, kid. come on down. <laughs> so, and, you know, Andrew Carmelini at the time was running Cafe Balut, and uh, he's a... He, he's a real deal, man. He's got uh, probably about 10 restaurants now. He's won every award you can think of from James Beard to Food and & Wine. And uh, we had a real superstar group of people. Um, when I was staging there, it would be called a stage. And when I was when I first got my first job in New York was at Cafe Balut. And, you know, you had the executive chef now of uh, Danielle, which is uh, Jean-Francois. You had um, Zach Bell which has gone on to do amazing things, but you had like a superstar. What I compare it to, my personal opinion, is like having a Lakers crew or having the Chicago team. Bulls, I yeah, mean, just... these guys went off to do, well, the timing was right because okay. it was on the upswing, but all these guys are established in some capacity and all of them have pulled in high accolades. Um, and I was there when one was working sauce, one was working Sue, one was a, another Sue, one was an executive chef, um, and then some of the guys I've worked for, uh, in particular, uh, Mario Carbone and uh, Rich Teresi, uh, these guys these guys have a restaurant group now that rivals who they work for. Wow. Yeah. They're, they're kicking ass. Now, what makes a top chef, quote unquote, a top chef? Um, I think relationships with the writers. Okay. I think there, you know, anything I learned from Danielle, Danielle had a PR person glued to his hip every day. Really? Georgina. Really? Same with Wolfgang Puck. Wolfgang Puck, his wife was a marketer. Okay. And I, I, think, I think it's a good component and it's a big box that needs to be checked off. You know, the cost associated with it and the time associated with it. Um, oh, God, yeah, the time. It's challenging because what happens is you're out of your restaurant and you're choosing to be outside your restaurant which you need highly skilled people to be able to execute consistently because right. it's at a very high level either you know it's delicious or it's not there's no in between I think and you know you have to it's definitely a calculated risk um, but those relationships with him and with food and wine I mean you know his vote Danielle's vote or Andrew Carmelini's vote or Mario Batali's vote they hold a lot more weight. Sure. You know, a phone call to food and wine about how, you know, my sous chef just opened up a restaurant. Boom, and, all of a sudden. I mean, there's nobody that comes out from nowhere. Now, when I was coming up, I think now, I think that's a little bit more available because there's other ways to attract uh, a little bit more attention to what you're doing. Okay. Or I think the trend has been over the years is to let's get out of New York, let's get out of Chicago, let's get out of San Francisco and go beyond these cities to find out who's doing some delicious food somewhere else. I've eaten at some places from with chefs with high accolades and I haven't been very impressed. Sometimes my best meals have been from people that maybe just have the passion that are inside the restaurant and um, 
those have been the most surprising to me. When you were in New York, mm -hmm. was there places you wanted to sit and eat? Like you're like, okay, I got to hit this restaurant. I got to try this place out. Yeah, I couldn't I could afford it. Right, I mean, yeah. It's, it's like the catch-22. You're earning like $24,000 a year. You got three roommates. You're working six days a week. And the food you're producing, you cannot really ever see on the other side. Um, you know, Andrew uh, from Cafe Balut, if you came, if you like wanted to come in with your family, uh, he'd take care of you. That's which nice. Was, yeah, Andrew was great. Uh, and uh, he really led from the front on that. That's why he was able to hold on to... He holds on to his teams for... Years, five, six, eight years. That's and a long time. Again, same consistency with Mulberry Street. So whether you're small or big, same kind of general consensus. They hold on to their teams for long periods of time. Wow. Big component, I think, when I reduce it down to, you know, brass tactics. Right. But um, going out to other places, I wish I could have gone out to more. Um, as through the years... I was able to move up through the ranks and earn a little bit more money. Um, I don't really go to three-star Michelin restaurants anymore. <laughs> I don't even go to two-star Michelin restaurants anymore. I, I'm kind of over him. You know, I was in Japan with my wife about a year and a half ago, and we ate at a three-star Michelin restaurant in Japan. You know, everything to the T. Uh, we spent about four and a half hours there, and I don't know, like 1600 bucks, And it was just like, you know... We this, could have done it for a third of this. This, we're, this is probably our last three-star Michelin <laughs> restaurant for a long time. You know, and I don't know if it's I'm eating different or I find more value because maybe the general cooking uh, tech techniques and the approaches have improved overall through maybe YouTube and the Internet. I'm not sure, but... For me, it's all about value now. Is, now. is your palate different, the way you sit down and look at a meal, whether it's at a three-star Michelin place yeah. or a, you know, just a regular? I mean, do you look at it and go, oh, that salt or the way the yeah, meat? Of course, or of the, course, of course. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Can when, you enjoy the regular meal and not, not tear it apart? Okay. If it's good. I can't do that with <laughs> <And> photography. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do it with photography? No, no. I'm always judging everybody. Yeah. I cannot look at... I've, I've stopped photographers at weddings to help them. <laughs> be like, you're doing this all wrong. There's, well, it's nice to be proactive. Yeah. You're helping them out. Right. They need to know the truth. Right. So do you, would you give feedback at a place and be like, hey, <laughs> come on. Um, That's awesome. <laughs> you know, I think photographers may take a little bit more counsel <laughs> than chefs. Yeah, because, yeah, so. you know, with chefs, there's a lot of ego and pride, you know, and they all want to be accepted and they all think what they produce is the end all be all. But the reality is, is there's a lot of different opinions. And I that's true. And, you know, what deciphers me, I think, from a lot of maybe the majority of chefs is I, I look for maybe just themes. OK. You know, if somebody says something to me, I take file and put it in the back of my brain. If I hear it two, three, four times, if I hear it over a course of a small amount of time, well, then we probably need to make that adjustment. You know, when you get into the ownership role, um, it's very important you take inventory of those type of opinions and you categorize them and you become who you need to be for the guests, not for your own ego and pride. Right. And that's, I think, uh, a big choke point for chefs that could be starting out or want to get into owning and running restaurants is they can't get beyond that somebody else has the ability to dictate 
yes. what they want. But the reality is, is if we're if the priority is serving the guest and giving the guests what they want, well, it's an easy decision. Wow. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. It's not rocket science. There's no pixie dust, man. <laughs> there isn't. Everyone thinks there's a pixie dust or some some magic wand. No. No, there isn't. No. And I, I think that's in any market. Yeah. I'll give you an example of a meal I really enjoyed. We're in Oregon. We pulled over, and uh, our niece chose some some steakhouse. Okay. And uh, like. I liked the menu, I liked the combinations, thought it was interesting. I thought he may be, you know, going above and beyond what he could probably do. I took the first bite, I said, dude, this guy, this guy knows how to cook, man. This guy loves what he's doing. Right. I knew it, I knew it in the first bite. Wow. Yeah. That, that's and good. It's, yeah, it's easy. It's, it's probably easy for, for, for your market. I right. Think. But do you say that? You just, you just so, will you say something like, hey, let the chef know that was a damn good meal? Absolutely. If, if they do a good job, um, tip, and um, I will I will definitely praise them. You know, we pulled over in uh, Tillamook at this burger stand. Right. And um, they did some good burgers. And, you know, all I do, and I, I could see them overwhelmed because there was a group of people there. And I, I'm very, uh, I'm a cheerleader, you know. Hey, you guys are doing amazing. We love the food. Keep it up. Because I could, I, I know the stress. I could see it. I could see in their body language. Right. I could see it just in their overall demeanor because they were going through a push. And I, again, I'm just a cheerleader and making sure that they keep going. You don't want to whip on an apron and he'll go back there and help him out. No, no, no. From afar. <laughs> Great. Keep it up. Yeah, yeah that a boy. Yeah. Uh, see ya. <laughs> see you later. <laughs> Gotta get the family in the yeah. RV and get the but hell you out know, of here. So, but, sometimes, but sometimes, you know, just, just that type of compliment at that particular time uh, just validates because I think they're all filled with self-doubt and sure. is this going to go on? Is, right. Because it's We're all getting these, crushed. Yeah. Is this all these intangibles? Is it the way it was yesterday? Is it, you know, a lot of these things kind of creep into your mind. And um, if they have one good compliment or a couple good compliments, I think, or some kind of uh, feedback that's positive, I think that's enough to go on for the next day or week or month. Oh, man. So where do you find yourself at CIA going? Are you going to get now? I, I, from what I understand, you yep. went to Europe. Yeah. So now how does that happen? Is that like a apply internships or something on the bulletin board? Hey, come so, to so, our lovely country. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. there was a chef at the CIA at the time called Chef LaRue, and he was part of the Scoffier and was there for like 15 years, and he had some contacts in France. Um, I knew he sent people to France. Um, so what I did was I... Um, now, is France the, the gold standard? Is that the place better than that, maybe at that Italy particular, or... For me, I wanted to learn Bolivia? French technique. <laughs> no, you know, it's just a better matter of perspective. So okay. my perspective at that time was French, and I wanted to learn from the masters. Sure. Um, so, again, applying the biographies that I've already researched and just kind of going along with the plan. So... They, they sent you over there for free, and the, he would be very selective. And um, I didn't have a lot of money, so what... You know, who does, right? You're spending all that for school. All you're for not, school. And you're not making a fortune. No, so you're paying for food and clothes, and right. maybe a date with a girlfriend, and that's pretty much yes. it. Yeah. And, if, and then what happened was there's all these uh, recipe contests in the Culinary Institute of America. Okay. And um, from there... 
what I found out was if I submitted about 11 or 12 recipes that I'd win, one, I'd either win first, second, or third. So I won about <laughs> $9,000 in recipe contests. That's and I, great. And I applied that in theory of getting uh, a recommendation to go to France. So simultaneously when I'm winning all these kind of one, two or threes, um, I worked for free at Escoffier and served as kind of a, I forget what they called it. It was not more of a mentorship. It was kind of somebody who would assist the chef okay. for the class. And I did that for, I don't know, I did that on Saturdays in the mornings for, uh, I don't know, five, six weeks. And um, Yeah, because people don't understand, the kitchen's open very early yes. to get all that preparation done. Oh, They're yeah. not cooking at five o'clock in the evening. Well, you you had the morning time. crew for lunch. Right. Yeah, oh, that too. But so, you're doing your sauces and a lot of things are prepped in the morning. In the morning and then two to three days ahead, depending. And I'll give oh. you an example. So burgers here are easy because they're on the day. Right. Barbecue, you better be three days ahead. Right. You're and you better be selling it all. And then if you're not selling it all, where's it all going? Ooh. Because of all that time, energy, labor. Right. How, how, how do you guesstimate the amount of demand? Yeah, your Tuesday crowd's bigger than your Saturday crowd. Exactly. And then you're guesstimating. And that's a, that's a constant stress for assessing exactly how much to have because guests aren't very understanding of running out of anything either. <laughs> no, no. Not when they can go down the street and get it. Right. So you better better have it. But that's kind of the contrast. Right. Uh, for French cooking, yeah, you're about two, three days ahead depending on the menu item. Jeez. And the six or seven different components on each dish. And there's a lot of moving parts. But I participated in just um, learning and then understanding and developing a relationship with uh, the chef and um, told him what I wanted to do. And we formed a relationship and I had a good externship from Cafe Blue. Great. And I had a good recommendation from there. So, um, he, and those all help. Yeah. So it was, it's, you know, a lot of boxes were checked off. Um, but again, I think he understood where I wanted to go and what I wanted to be. And he sent me over to France. That's great. Yeah. How was your time there? Um, the time there was good. Good. Uh, it was definitely, from a cultural standpoint and social standpoint, it was a good growth opportunity as well as culinary. And how old are you at this point? Probably 20. Okay. 21, maybe. It's great. Yeah. And uh, what I learned was we are Americans. <laughs> I am an American. And I insulted a lot of people by coming over there and not being completely fluent in French. And... Um, was your French at that level just basically food? Just kitchen French, yeah. Right. And they were pissed off, man. They were like, who's this other American trying to probably steal our techniques? Right. This, you know, One more, SO one more yeah. sauce goes out the window. And yeah, this SOB, who does he think he is? And just to give you a better understanding, they all knew English. Did they really? Yeah, they started speaking it to me on the, the last day that I was there. Now, how do <laughs> they spoke French for six months, and on the last day, they they let me know that they all understood English and spoke English. Oh, thanks, you. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's their country. But yeah, I was but visiting. What are, you're not going to pick up French right away. For all you know, you don't go. Well, so. technically, I was supposed to learn full French, be fluent, and then come. That's what their perspective was. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. I know. Because how long have they been speaking English? Well, they knew English, right? Though. They've been, yep, yes, but they probably learned it for a very long time. They probably teach it. Yeah, you, I'm sure you didn't take French when you were at Sonora. No, <laughs> no, I bought I bought some tapes and 
I mean, that was the gist of it. That was it. Yeah, self-educated. <laughs> For whatever that's worth. Now in you, French. Now, you're in Europe during September 11th. Yeah. Tell, um, me, tell me about that. Uh, so, actually, this was the emotional connection that allowed them to probably speak English to me because that was kind of on the tail end of this um, stage, which was, I'm sorry I said externship, but it was a stage, um, which means you just work, you're a grunt for six months. Um, it happened uh, one day in between lunch and dinner, and I remember right, that... Yeah, it's afternoon for you. Yeah, I remember the the biggest asshole there was, the sous chef. Um, he he was very emotional, and uh, he put his arm around me, and he said, there's something wrong in America. And then I said, huh. I, said, I thought it was a joke. Right. And then um, they just they showed the towers falling, and... Um, Everybody was very understanding. I worked through the night, and everybody was uh, very solemn. How was, like, being in France, though, that physical response? Like, did, I'm sure people, after six months, kind of knew you were the American. Were they looking at you different the rest of that day? Like, oh, yeah. Joe, we're sorry. Yeah. Even though, like, your family wasn't attacked. It's just... Yeah. America was attacked, you're America, and they hang that on. Yeah, complete shock um, and uh, a level of empathy that um, I think only a situation like that can garner. Right. You know, um, I, and, and at that particular time, we, we were all just, you know, we're all on the same side. <laughs> right, all of a sudden. Yeah, and um, that- How did they perceive it, media-wise? They were, they were shocked, solemn, sad. They didn't know what was gonna happen. How quickly did you talk to mom and dad? Um, I don't remember, actually. It probably with, it would have to be within- that, that day or? Yeah, within 24 hours. You know, the reason I came back to the United States is uh, based on a phone call with my parents and they wanted me to, come home right I mean sure because I think they meant Orange County <laughs> but I went back to New York for them though well okay I was gonna say that's safe to come home yeah, but then exactly. you're going to ground zero New York exactly so they told me to come home which I interpreted it as going home to New York City and continuing my journey right yeah and I think they may have thought come back to Southern California so how quickly do you come home because you know that for that week everything in the country yeah probably pro as soon as I could got a flight back I got one back wow now yeah. how much longer had you have been in France um, or is it it was winding down it was winding down but um, I had some stages in Paris within those six months and uh, London and what I was planning on doing was again part of the plan was to work at one place and then have a referral work at another place and I had some other places on the list but um, and I was already making my phone calls I had a couple other uh, restaurants lined up at that particular time and one was for actually a job because I thought it was a good starting point and I could kind of leverage it wow. go up and up and up and um, so you could have spent maybe a, a year a year. a year year and a half that, that was my goal my goal was probably about a year and a half how was your French getting uh, good, and I was just getting more acclimated. I was just yeah, you're immersed. Yeah, that man. Point. I mean, it was it was yeah, no choice. Nice to, to get good. Yeah, it was nice. It was nice, and I like those situations. You know, the other type of um, people, the, the, not the type, but the people you run into when you you're that vulnerable. Uh, there's always people that come out of the woodwork and really help you out um, in, in in anywhere, any country, any 
any area uh, uh, that I've always been really intrigued and happy to, to have in my life. Um, they could come, you know, for a day. They can be a friend for six months. But there's always been someone to assist or help or interpret anything that I've really ever encountered challenge-wise. Right. Yeah, whether it's professional or personal. So you Where to live, how to get a bus, <laughs> money. I mean, it's all, you know, and the, the chef uh, actually ended up started, he, he housed us, actually. Really? I, yeah, he had, he had these four apartments. I was housed. That was part of the agreement. And then um, he started giving me money after a while too so you know things things uh they start at a, some point and then you know uh, there's an, a connection and a relationship that's built and i think things just transpire and i think there's a lot of good there's a ton of good with people did you fall in love with a certain food while you were there um because i mean that's got to expand your palate some yeah i think i you know i was just so driven on french just french technique french french ingredients we're going to take a quick break for a sponsor and we'll be right back what is their, I don't want to say secret, but what's, what makes that French cuisine stand out? I think the, the takeaway from France is that we were doing better French food in New York City than we were in France. Is My that because they opinion. got lazy? Um, or no. Or take it for granted? Um, I, think, I think they're steeped in tradition. Okay. I don't think they're as progressive, um, which is fine. I also think that the amount of volume that they did, they did, we, we did like 50 covers a night. You know, if you go to a place in New York City, they're doing 275 to 325 covers a night. And they're still doing the same food, and it's actually improved. So That's the, French, yeah, the French technique with, I think, the, the mindset of an American, which is kind of systemized the sequence, and then just expanding instead of contracting, um, it's a great combination. And I realized how well of an operation these restaurants were that I was participating with working in that were just amazing at the top of their level. I can't imagine serving that type of quantity food at that level every day, lunch and dinner. I mean, it's, it's an amazing feat to have. So when you say they're, you know, mm. It's not stuck in tradition, but they're in their traditional ways. Mm -hmm. Is that something you find in the industry? Somebody will just say, okay, this is the way I do my barbecue and I'm not expanding. This is the way I do my cuisine. That's it. Yeah. And not kind of evolve it a yeah, little bit absolutely. all the time. Absolutely. Com comfort is, is dangerous, man. You get rusty. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, people do stick to what their comfort level is in the box they feel that they need to be in. Absolutely. Right. I think that's with every market. Sure. And again, that 80-20 world, you're going to have those 80% of people in every market just right. fit within I'm that comfort box. comfort right here. Yeah. I know I'm going to stay in my lane and not expand at all. Yeah, exactly. But with food, you, kind of, you have to. You have to kind of evolve it. Yeah, I think you have to all the time. You have to be, and I think it's just good for your psyche. It's good for everything. And the customer wants it. I mean, yes, okay, you can go to In-N-Out and get the same burger. Sure. But you also, you can come here at Burger Parlor and get a bigger choice of a burger. Yes. And we have the secret menu items and we have, I mean, we've ran through a lot of menu items throughout the years. You know what's so funny though is, as we say that, there's 
my data and my numbers say that we're all creatures of habit. Sure. And it's funny, whatever those top three burgers are have been the top three burgers ever since we've opened, unfortunately. <laughs> and they're delicious burgers, don't but get me wrong. that's your clients' habits, right? They just come in and they want yeah. that, that smoky but they do want They do want the option, though, to have something that's different, but they usually go, eh, I'll go to the parlor. Oh, I'll go to that Nashville. Oh, I'll right. go to the smoky. And they, they, they're almost torn every time. <laughs> Every time I'm kind of one-on-one with them. Um, so the habits are pretty strong. Okay. Well, and, and I imagine for established businesses that are beyond five or 10 years. Sure. You know, they, they, they go there for that particular item and that particular item only. If we're talking about fine dining, um, that level of cuisine, um, you're changing every day. Right, and, um, and in what way, explain. Um, Just. Well, usually a chef brings in something and we would, you interpret it and you make what you want with it. We're bringing in a certain fish or we're serving in a rack of lamb or or whatever. Celery yak or lamb saddle or uh, we have a bunch of foie gras, we have a bunch of uh, pork jowls. I mean, maybe you'll make a terrine, but. But that's gotta be great, right? That gives you some creativity. Oh yeah. And there's nothing, there's nothing more rewarding. You know, at the highest level, what I was doing when I was executive chef of Bastide was we may be making menus on the spot. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. It's a great, it's a great feeling to be able to create on the spot and have the foundation and the technique where you are comfortable with going in any direction you see fit at that particular time. That's kind of bold for the client or the customer to come in and go, I don't know what the menu is today. Yeah. What do you got? Yeah. Because well, as it goes back to the creature of habit, I'm, yeah. I'm going for this. You know, when you go to a Bastide or you go to a Danielle or you go to a maybe not maybe French laundry is a little bit more systematic. But when you go to a top restaurant in an area, um, usually you're trusting the chef versus okay. the other way around. So you're giving trust based on their accolades and their um, experience and you're actually giving yourself up to allow them to be who they are when you get into a market where i'm at that's it's completely reversed and that's what i had to learn initially is that people do not going to give you trust what they want <laughs> is you have to earn you have to earn their trust through kind of a a, a structure and a box that they see is fit for the price point and the menu offering. Okay. And that was, that's where we had to, you know, divorce the ego and pride. Right. That's, <laughs> I put that off to the side. <laughs> but, but you could still be creative within those realms. Sure. Um, and it just takes more of a discipline. Okay. So you find yourself back in New York. Yes, sir. Post-September 11th. Yes. Weeks of post-September 11th. Yeah. Not like we're talking 20 years. Yeah. What's our game plan now? Because the world's kind of tossed and turned. I uh, go back to my externship site, which is Cafe Blue, and I start working at Cafe Blue. Now, how is the atmosphere in New York at the time? Uncertainty. Uncertainty. But, you know, the, the kitchen guys, you know, I remember Zach Bell saying, I could get, you know, he... <laughs> They're kind of rugged and rigid. Sure. You know, he's like, you know, the towers went down two weeks ago. We just did 325 covers last night. You better get your ass in gear, man. None of this extern shit. Right. Get it started. Stop whining like a little bitch. 
That's really how it was. <laughs> that was it. That was it, man. That's New York. That's New York, dude. Get, get ready, man. Let's do this. Yeah. And the dining, the dining didn't go down much. I mean, we're doing 300 covers on a, on a Friday or Saturday, which is high volume, especially if you're doing multi-courses in a la carte. Yeah, but New Yorkers go out. They, they go out and eat all the time, 24 hours a day. Exactly. And he, you know, they were kind of relating... But, you know, on a charitable aspect, Danielle and the rest of the group, for those two weeks or three weeks, he took all of his executive chefs down to Ground Zero, and they did Meals on Wheels. And Danielle's doing something right now with COVID-19. I mean, when you look at a marketing and you look at a charitable perspective, I only mentioned marketing, the charitable aspect's the same way. So um, usually the criteria is you're with Meals on Wheels and a couple other charitable uh, organizations, and you're donating donating your time and effort and resources to that charity. That's big. Yeah, and they, every chef that kind of checks off all these boxes uh, as charitable is, is one of them that's pretty big. Um, Danielle's been doing it with a developer um, recently with COVID-19 where they're making, you know, I don't know, four or 5,000 meals a day. Jeez. Yeah. And the guy's like 68 or 70 or right. something. Right, he's not 28. That's a lot of work. Well, I don't know. I, I think he's leading. Well, still, but the, an offering that's an is, effort. It's an effort. And, you know, they deserve all that success that they've had because I think they overserve every relationship that they've ever come in contact with, whether it's uh, the flavor profile and the consistency of the food or their teams or charitable, charitable aspects, yeah. It, it's all-encompassing, man. It's zero-sum game. You give it all or nothing. So when you come back from France and now you're in New York, do you feel like your your game has been upped a little bit? Oh yeah, I have a ton of confidence, ton of confidence, ready ready to ready to just make sure Chop, that. Chop, cut, make sauce, no. do it all. Um, no, not from. So but I no, had. But a, you, you're, you're better at. Oh it. yeah, I have, I had a lot of uh, opportunities to make sauces and uh, meats and other kind of. Uh, steps that were beyond I think my skill set at the time I feel very comfortable with I've always felt very comfortable I think I've always been very overconfident or overzealous but I think that's the first step in achieving what you need to be I mean you need to think it and be it before you are it so um, I've always taken that approach now I've met a lot of resistance along the way (laughs) and uh, I'll continue to meet that but um, you know you have to just overcome that because whether it's the person in front of you who's kind of doesn't think you can do it or a superior or a food critic or uh, a customer or a market or a city i mean that's just the name of the game that's just the way it works yeah shouldn't be offended <laughs> no that's, no not that's at all it. so what what's your plan now you're back in new york what are you gonna do uh, i think the plan is are, are we done with school done with school and the plan is to obviously be a michelin executive chef michelin star ex- executive chef <clears throat> You know, life gets in that's the way the of those plans. But that's yeah. the Oscar. That's the Heisman, right? Yep. For me. Okay. Um, and I think as I'm looking at the culinary landscape, I need to work with Danielle. I need. I wanted to work with a guy named David Belay. And um, I think the third was kind of just... I, I want to work with Jean George, and I remember um, I sacrificed Jean George for a guy named Nori Suji, which opened up a Mandarin Oriental, and he had a guy he trained with, which was Tetsuya, which was uh, like a hardcore French Japanese chef from Australia, which is like 
He's like the Paul Bucuse of Australia. He worked for Charlie Trotter, and I never had a guy that I worked with Charlie Trotter with. So I wanted to understand his techniques. Okay. And I did my research. So now, what is when you when you and say? And I know I'm all over the place, but so right. I, I picked Danielle. I worked for that time frame, and then I moved on to David Boulay, and then I moved on to a guy named Nori Suji. Now, with with Suji, like when you say technique. What was one chef doing over the other that that technique you want to try to pull and learn I didn't, from? I didn't know at the time. All I knew was the ingredients he was using at the time um, I wanted to work with. I knew I was a little bit... So I went from hardcore French technique and very traditional, which right. is Dan, yeah. Daniel Boulud. But David Boulay was a, a gringo. He was a white guy cooking French food. Um, and he learned from French chefs, but his techniques were a little bit lighter. Um, he didn't use flowers. Uh, he didn't use uh, creams that much. He used infused oils. He thickened up his sauces with purees of vegetables. And he was just very, he was the polar opposite from a traditional French chef, but still offered um, the combinations of food. And they were lighter, they were vibrant, um, and they were delicious. I mean, I think Dan uh, David Blaze food compared to Danielle's, I would choose, they're all great, but I would prefer David Blaze food. Um, and a lot of people did at the time. He was a little bit of a bad boy. Um, had didn't have the best reputation. He wasn't the most, you know, he was a little bit more rigid than most chefs. He wasn't as polished. He wasn't a big talker. But, um, and his environments that he created from a culture perspective were questionable. Okay. Um, but but his, you see a lot of that in the, in the yeah, food industry. And I wasn't offended. What? I, but his, his, he had delicious food. Just delicious, light. And the techniques he was using at that particular time were used by kind of El Bulli and Fernand Adrian, which was a Spanish kind of outlier restaurant that really captivated the rest of the world and foams and gels and uh, making crackers out of mushrooms and just odd kind of circumstances that you'd like to try once or a menu item that you like to try once but you may not jones and for it the next time right but i thought i went from traditional to a different way of doing french i thought that was very important and then once i got through kind of understanding French technique and feeling comfortable with all of it, then I thought, well, I should be applying kind of more Asian flavors and Asian techniques if I can to kind of building my arsenal. Sure. Wow. Um, I mean, just get as many tools you can get in the tool box. Yeah, exactly. And Nori, Nori to me uh, was a guy I ran into. I don't even know how I ran into him. Oh, I ran into him because a, a lot of guys from Boulay were leaving for uh Grey Coons and Grey Coons um, was a chef at Les Panas and Les Panas okay. uh, was literally I think the most popular restaurant in New York City the creme de la creme for about I think five or six years uh, wow. Andrew Carmelini came from there I know um, uh, Cardones who recently passed away from Tabla but you have a lot of New York City chefs at that were established 10 years later all came from Les Panas. There's these really? little kind of colonies. I was part of one at Cafe Balud that kind of they sprout up five or six established dudes that really set the tone for the next five or six years. Les Panas was one of those incubators that did it. And Gray Coons was the guy. I mean, he, he 
he was just the guy. Everybody looked up to him. And he was coming out of retirement. He closed down Les Panos. I think he was fired because he wasn't making... <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. Right. But, he, you know, Andrew told me that he never knew how to run a profitable kitchen. You know, he was just so ego and pride-driven and nothing really made sense financially. That's probably why it was an incubator and why it was the number one restaurant is because maybe it didn't have to make as much money. It was associated with a hotel. Usually hotel restaurants are in a, like a, um, they're, they complement the hotel. They're okay. there to bring in somebody that may want to stay for a $600 room that they may not have to survive on the restaurant. It's right. almost like an advertisement and a way of building an emotional connection to maybe other aspects of the restaurant. Maybe it's banquets, maybe you want to have a wedding there, you know, or a drink at the bar. But usually the fine dining restaurant was never something that was a big profit center. Sure, but so, it's there. But it's there and it served him very, very well. Anyways, long story short, he opens up another restaurant um, in the Time Warner building. And that's when Per Se was opening up. And I didn't... I remember that, yeah. Yeah. And again, same history repeats itself. You know, Gray Coons at the time, he chose the window, which looks over Central Park, for his kitchen. For his kitchen. For his kitchen. So this should give you kind of oh boy a, an approach and a mindset. Yeah. I mean, who gave this guy money? <laughs> who endorsed this guy? I mean, business yeah. 101. You have the window. Guess who's, who's it's for? The people paying for the food. Yeah. My personal opinion. Yeah, no, absolutely. For what it's worth. <laughs> absolutely. Could not believe it. So a bunch of these guys from Boulay were getting jobs there. And um, I just, I, to me, I... I learned, I thought, from Andrew, whatever I can learn, because I remember some of his recipes were from Greg Coons, if he kind of connected the dots. And then um, I ran into Nori Suji, I think, from another guy, and he just fit the bill. He was young. He was about 28, 29, had a lot of ambition, and um, was never really given kind of his credit that I think he should have been given. But Why do you think that is? I don't know. I don't know. The dining room is amazing. The timing was amazing. PR? Not there? PR is not going to be there with a uh, hotel versus... And they are, but they would have to be... They can't be a global company. Okay. You know, and then you have to have the right PR. Right. Um, but technique-driven, um, the techniques, the combinations, I think were... Top? They just... I think they're most top, yes. And this is the other side of the, the restaurant business. Sometimes you have all that and you don't hit. Right, just not the right combination, right time, just not there. Just don't hit. It doesn't mean he's not a high qualified guy that could probably be with the best. Um, it just, just happens. just happens, man. And it happens with every market. I mean, sure. it could be a movie, it could be a song. Right. It could be a lot of things. And although I thought it was the best opportunity for it to be a big hit and maybe it was outshadowed by Per Se or by Grand Coos's restaurant but uh, for me and my personal development I thought it was the best place to be that's good yeah so what's the calling home uh, he has a chef friend named David Myers in Los Angeles right and um he owned a place called Sona, or he was a partner in Sona, and he came from uh, uh, Joachim, Joachim, which was uh, the head guy of Patina, and uh, he worked at the original Patina off of Melrose, and he worked for Charlie Trotter, that's where he met uh, Nori Suji, and um, 
I liked his food. I liked his food. It was super aggressive. It was free, and um, it was anything you wanted it to be at any given time. I mean, and that's how Charlie Trotters was. I never worked at Charlie Trotters. I never uh, staged there, but there was a there was a freeness to Charlie's food and his kitchens um, that was unlike any other place that I've ever been. And at that particular time. Uh, I knew how to do everything. All I needed f- for somebody to do was let me do it. Right. And, and mom's uh, got to be happy you're, you're home. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, we get to start at Sona. And at that particular time, uh, I'm probably sous chef material, guaranteed. And uh, I go in there, and um, he's, he gave me some ingredients. And I cooked probably the best tasting he's ever had. Him and his sous chef told me that. What would you cook? I don't remember. I don't remember. It was just there. Whatever you had, just, just whatever I had. Out and hit a, I do hit remember. A home run. Yes, I do remember one of the sauciers come in and tell me I was cooking my chicken wrong or sous my chicken wrong, and I needed to cook it different, and it was perfect. And I thought, oh, man, what an asshole, dude. <laughs> you know, he thought he was big shit because he was uh, coming from the French Laundry. And um, he just didn't have it. Just didn't have it. I mean, you could work at these places, but if you don't have it, you don't have it. Uh, you can kind of um, fall in this gray area where you're just got the halo effect. And I just wasn't really impressed by him very much. But um, his sous chef was a guy named Michael David, and Michael David worked at actually Cafe Balloon. He wow. actually he actually helped me on my externship. Wow. I worked, on, I worked under his station. So there was kind of that connection, too. So um, kicked ass on the tasting, and then I told him, hey, man. He goes, well, what are you doing here? Why do you want to be here? I said, well, I'm going to be your sous chef. He goes, no, you're not. I said, well, why not? He goes, well, you just can't come in here and tell me that I'm going to be your sous chef. I said, really? I said, I think I'm ready. And he goes, no. So I said, well, what is it going to take for me to get ready? And he, I think it was kind of tripping up over himself, and he didn't know how to handle it. And then, because no one had been, probably been so bold. Yeah, I mean, come on, dude. I got the chops, dude. Yeah, Karen, I'm ready. I'm, I'm going to be an asset to you and your restaurant. And at that time, Sona was probably the most. It was the hottest restaurant in town. Okay. I mean, you had A-list celebrities, B-list celebrities, C-list celebrities, whatever it was. Everybody was there, and. Um, it was an amazing time to be there at that particular time. So um, we agreed on a plan for sous chef. So <laughs> agreed on a plan. Yeah. So was it nothing more than just a timetable? Timetable and a plan. So it was like three months or four okay. months. He just I wanted mean, to see if you had it. Oh no, he wanted to see if I could take the bullshit. Oh, okay. It was more of a filtering process. Okay, then that makes sense. And I'm a stubborn guy. Yeah. Yeah, so I could probably outwill him. So I outwilled him. You know, the way I got the sous chef gig was I literally looked at all of his list, I wrote him a letter, and I, I, I reviewed Yelp reviews, I reviewed his own testimonials that he was just talking about randomly. I wrote them all down and just said, What's up, man? We ready? Let's do this. And he said, finally, we're ready. But, you know, the introduction to the sous chef was great. I mean, he held a kind of a, a kitchen ceremony with uh, the rest of the restaurant and, um, you know, gave me my own uh, cards and chef jackets with my name on it and made a big deal about it. So what did he that was mean really good to you? at that. What did that mean to you? Because that's um, big. That's, that you're, you're here. Uh, it just means, means the next step's completed and we need to move on and get the next step going. <laughs> So uh, it, it was great. Um, 
there was a lot of responsibility, which I really kind of enjoyed. And it was about getting uh, that thick skin and understanding really what the kitchen's require and need from uh, a, a managing standpoint and supervising standpoint so uh, I was around 25 I think and um, it, was, it was a good place to be I was still on my timeline and um, it was great it was great um, you're probably working your ass off a lot of hours here probably 80 90 hours a week first one there last one off I was on like burnout burnout course like 101 but that's that's pretty consistent i mean that's putting in the hours you need to at that point right yeah you know i've always i don't think i don't think because you work a long hours that they're productive hours you know i and i'm always you know as i reflect on it now you know i'm always looking up to shorten up gaps and to group things together so you don't have to work that much you know i think a lot of chefs or people in the restaurant business because you work 80 or 90 hours a week you're productive that doesn't mean you're productive at all it doesn't mean you're accomplishing anything at all it means that you're probably not evaluating processes and improving upon them to shorten up that gap and something else probably needs to change in that sequence that's my personal opinion but at that particular time do whatever is required and necessary and um we serve i served that post pretty well um how long um i don't know year year and a half or something that's a lot of hours in a year and a half well i was living in orange county at that particular time what was that drive every day i was falling asleep i was falling asleep and you know one of the one of the uh, that biggest was, was that West Hollywood or no? West Hollywood? Yeah, off of La Cienega, next to Trashy Laundry, yes. or across the street. Yeah, and it was just like Burnout Central. So um, I think if I lived in the area, I think it could have went on more and more. But at that particular time too, um, Sona was going through an expansion. They wanted to expand to his wife's bakery, and then there's less less attention going to Sona, and then. He was trying to court um, the CEO as an investor, uh, well, the CEO of Spencer's. Remember Spencer's? Yes, yeah. yes. formerly of Spencer's, yes. Yeah. And um, so, she, so she was in there once a week, and David was great at marketing. Great. David really wanted to be kind of a TV chef. He didn't really want to be like a real chef. You know, he allowed me to run the restaurant. He allowed Michael David to allow to have the restaurants he would just kind of come in for an hour say hi and leave but you know I, I can't knock it because he had really highly skilled people allow them to do what they needed to do and then he did what he had to do um, there's a lot of um, why I was there too there was a little bit of uncertainty because Michelle his wife that was getting a little bit more press on the pastry than the food I think caused a little bit of a, a wedge interesting and then that wedge just continued to grow and they ended up getting a divorce and there was other kind of personal habits that were probably kind of coming to the surface that you know, it was like one big dis dysfunctional family. Um, Who knew pastry could split up a family? I know. Well, that and some some other things. But, sure. But I mean, you know, uh, and then a lot of people you don't, don't hear that too often. I know. Divorce settlement, pastry. Uh huh. Not adultery. No pastry. <laughs> no, it was adultery too. Well, I just was going with stuff, the pastry. Yeah. But um, but you know, I, I'm not going to knock them for any of that, but. Michelle came from a different family. Michelle came from a PhD. Her parents were doctors. 
And, you know, she knew a different lifestyle than David. David was kind of from a guy from Columbus, Ohio, and um, probably grew up with not much, but had these ambitions of making right. sure that he was going to be more successful than when he started. And I just think they gravitated together, and then they, she actually was, I think, responsible for most of the funding. There was another guy, a German family, that was kind of in the background with partnerships, Basel and his wife, that he was a cook, but never a chef, but still loved the restaurant business. His dad had like hundreds of millions of dollars from a German pharmaceutical uh, place, and that's who really funded Sona. David was more of the front man. He was more of the sweat equity. And as these accolades kind of built up, I think he just got lost focus of his ego and, you know, right. you know success there, 101. Is there a lot of that in the industry where you have the some hidden backer that just puts a ton of money into the that restaurant and Chef So-So is just kind of the front man? Yeah, and you know... Because there's not too many chefs running around with $100 million in their back pocket to no. front a crazy project. Well, this was, this was a crazy project, you know? And as time went on and revealed that David was uh, kind of smudging the P&Ls of Sona and his bakery and to gain more investors to expand restaurants right. that really weren't profitable. Sona was never profitable. Oh boy. That bakery across the street from Los Angeles was never profitable. That's not good. And then he was misleading investors. And, you know, there's a Los Angeles Times article that came out. And that's not the kind of article you want coming out. No. Not at all. No. So you can't steal from Peter to pay Paul. And then from there, you know, a lot of all those other relationships probably broke off. And, you know, once that's in black and white, it's very hard to recover. I don't know if you do. So I don't know what he's doing, but I, I don't I imagine it's not restaurants. Maybe consulting. So how long did you last there? Um, again, uh, probably about a year and a half. And then... Um, what, I, what did I do? I left. I got burned out, and I met my wife. I mean, I can see the burnout. Glad you met your wife, because, I mean, 90 hours a week will get you. Yeah. Well, I was falling asleep on the road, and I had, get a, you yeah, too. I had a, I had a lot of, I had a lot of, well, I had a blossoming personal relationship at the time, and um, I felt that I needed to double down and right. um, be available, because, you know. That's we, how relationships work, Joe, I know, so I'm glad you understand that. Jeez, man. <laughs> yeah, so that was my first introduction, that first step into it, so. Maturity is amazing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, maturity is amazing. So what I did was, uh, I was a sales rep for uh, Village Imports, which was a competitor of Chef Warehouse. And but I mean, you say that so nonchalantly, like, so you stepped away. I stepped away, yeah. Getting was, a different perspective. Right, I mean, 18 months early, you get your name on your chest that says Chef Joseph, and now you're just like, okay, I can't do 90 hours a week, and I've got this woman I'm falling in love with. Yeah. I'm going to step away from the thing I've chose to spend the first several years doing. How, exactly. how difficult was that for you? I don't think it was difficult if you got your priorities straight. So the priority was to uh, see if um, this was the woman that I want to be with for the rest of my life because I knew that chef, the chef life is pretty lonely. Uh, there's a lot of miserable people that are living in, you know, studio apartments with nothing more than the restaurant or the relationships around those restaurants. You know, from maitre d's to captains to sommeliers to executive chefs. I mean, there's a lot of guys that have chosen to give all of their effort, time, and attention to a restaurant. And I've always seek balance, and I knew that wasn't enough. So I thought, well, I'm 25. I'm sous chef at 
one of the hottest restaurants in LA. Uh, things are kind of deteriorating from the inside out. Right. I can still, if something doesn't work out in a year and we break up and I can still, I can still, uh, jump back any, in. Yeah. I could be an executive chef wherever I wanted. Right. I can be a sous chef wherever I wanted. I, I've earned it. So, but you were um, going to take a definite shot at this love. Yeah. And so I took a sales rep job and it was great. You know, I earned $60,000 a year for the first time. I had a gas allowance. I had a computer that you they gave me. You weren't working 80, 90 hours a no, week. Oh man, four days a week. And you got this hot chick. Yeah, Friday's off. <laughs> and, and I'm with this hot chick. So I was really, really, it, everything was great. Everything was really, really good. And then I started kind of, I started selling to restaurants or upscale restaurants. I'd sell them foie gras, truffle oils, um, chocolates for pastry chefs and just very high-end goods and I'd build these relationships um, and I started and I, Orange County was my territory I just started getting well, that's jealous. good that you get to see you stayed home you didn't yeah. get like Ventura yes so they gave me all of Orange County so perfect right and um, I remember how I got the job I was in an interview with them and they had like four more interviews and I bought I, I took care of their breakfast smart move yeah just smart move what'd man. you buy I don't know about them breakfast whatever, whatever it was, it was. whatever yeah. it was so they're interviewing me I'm I could I'm a good guy I could interview very well uh, uh, sales is kind of ingrained and in, I think in my DNA and um, I remember they go oh yeah you know the the this the clincher was uh, no, one, no, no one's ever bought us breakfast before I said really uh-huh you know so Easy $20, $25 investment. Right. <laughs> Paid off good. Boom. Got yeah. you a job. Got me a job. So uh, Orange County was my territory. I started opening up uh, accounts with existing restaurants and just started getting very frustrated very early on with having these bo these unqualified bozos that were hacks run these restaurants, <laughs> man. Started just started, eat you up? Yeah, man. I started eating me up a lot. And I just started that quickly. Like, well, I, I mean, would say about four or five months because that is quickly. I mean, you just saw it and you just went, Oh boy, well, it's an easy lifestyle. So what I started, so that one part was jealousy and envy. The other part was thinking I can get really used to four days a week and I get really comfortable. And if this goes on for too long, I'm probably not going to get back in the business and I'll probably regret it ultimately long-term. Now, is there a window like that where you say, I might not be able to get back in? Like, you, if you're away for 18 months, it's like, oh, who, who's Joseph? Well, I'd imagine, well, that... The, the connections yes, fade. Yes. People, the conne connections fade. And then I would imagine that just like any relationship, you know, it just gets stronger. Those roots are stronger. Right. It's hard to, hard to get out of what you're already um, developing with uh, those personal relationships. So I was very aware of that and I gave myself probably, you know, an 18 month timeline. It was on a timeline. I was like, okay, well, we're gonna do this for about 18 months max. And then we're gonna have to figure out some other kind of sidestep. And I don't know what that is, but I'm gonna have to go back, complete my goals. The relationship solidified. We're gonna, we're gonna get married. And um, that's, 
I guess compartmentalize. Well, yes. It sounds sad now that I, but, I review it. But, <laughs> but I mean, that's the way I was thinking about it. Then I'll get back into the business. But that's a smart move. You don't want to explain to her, oh, uh, before I get married to you, I'm I'm going to dump this job that yeah. allows me to exactly. live this lifestyle. And yeah. I'm going to fling back into 90 hours a week and hopefully you and I can work it out. No, yeah, no not at all. No. So, and uh, it was plus commission. So it was great. I had a huge territory plus commission. It was an easy four-day-a-week job. It allowed me a good balance of life. That and you I, were good at it. I was good at it. Yeah, it was easy. And you, easy inside, stuff. you kind of know what chefs need, what they want. Know how to talk to them. Right. Know how to fluff them up. But, now, but you're seeing them, and you're just your eyes are rolling in the back. Eyes of your are head. rolling, man. Eyes are rolling. So, I remember that the Fairmont Hotel was opening up in um, Newport, and um, I opened up an account with uh, a guy named Bruno Egia, which he worked for all. All these three-star Michelins. He was a French guy in France, and then had you known him previously? No, or just by name. No, no, it was just an account I opened up. Okay. And um, make a long story short, his no, make it long. We're here. No. <laughs> so I opened up an account with him, and um, we got to talking. We just talked shop for probably about you know probably about a month, and um, turns out that his chef de cuisine ended up just jumping ship. And, um, Did that happen a lot in the industry? Guys would just be like, I'm gone well, today? Well, during openings, okay. yes. During openings, highly stressful, a lot of hours, and it's you're guaranteed probably 20 or 30% of them don't end up even five to eight weeks beyond what those wow, openings are. that is a big number. If the volume's high? I thought you were going to say five to eight months. Five to eight weeks, and they're just jettisoned. Oh, that's scary. You better have insurance policies, too. You better have other people trained. You better have other people available that know how to do those jobs, or you're going to be doing them. You're going to be doing twice as much, and then it just gets challenging. Most people don't survive openings very long. And that's where, I guess, the networking comes in, where you know somebody, you know a buddy, and you go, you can call him up, and he can bail you out because you lose a guy on the line. Yeah, exactly. So for oh. me, for me, wow. Yeah, well, this was it's a just scary. It just sounds terrifying. It is terrifying. And then the thing is, the customers don't stop. and Right, being, they just keep coming. They don't care who's cooking. Just come on. I'm coming come in. I'm on. coming in. Coming in. And you better be right. Yeah. You better be consistent. And then you have one opportunity with that guest before they write you off or they decide, hey, listen, this was of value and we're going we're gonna to come back. So it's a zero, it's zero-sum game. It's, it's very high, high stress for that particular time of that business's existence, which is the most important. Um, yeah. So, so he loses a guy, loses a guy. And there I am. You're, work, you're I work there. I talk, well, I talk my way into it. Yeah. Right. Work, work, work my way into it. He but knew, you're in the right spot at the time, but he respected my background. He knew exactly who I was. He knew exactly who I worked for. And he's like, why don't you just come back? I said, okay. So that's what I did. Did it feel easy to step right back into it? Um, Knives yes. were sharp, that, ready to go. Yeah, all and, that stuff's easy. The cooking, the cooking on this particular point, second nature to me. Um, I could, uh, very, very easy. The challenging part is leading a group of people to do what I want them to do every day. And they don't know you. And they don't know me. And I come in all guns blazing and... Um, wasn't the best approach at all. <laughs> and the reason I went to a corporation too is again, kind of seeking this balance of, of getting a better understanding of where I need to be when I'm a business owner. So I was part of these smaller independent restaurant groups okay. and even single restaurants. And now 
I'm part of a big corporation. And the cor big corporations operate completely different compared to smaller restaurants uh, and the ones I've been a part of. So I thought it was a great learning experience from an administrative and supervisor standpoint right. to get my feet underneath me. The salary was great. Benefits were awesome. I had like two days off in a row. Right. Whoa. So I'm getting married. I can... They're actually allowing me time off for a honeymoon or, you know, or vacation. And I was like, whoa, this is pretty amazing. And I know that I'm going to have a time limit on this and I need to use this as another stepping stone. So uh, I did that for about two and a half years. Um, and then did one, you enjoy it? Yeah, I did. I learned a lot. I, what I did learn is how to get the most out of the teams, how to be tolerable of people's different skill sets lead from the front, train, and do everything that I didn't understand that particular time to be able to provide uh, a group of people. That's and, good, you, got, you learned from that. And chef, and uh, the chef, chef Bruno, or Bruno, was, was great in assisting and working with me, because I probably was a good opportunity to get fired a couple of times, but he went to bat for me, and um, we, 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 we lowered the turnover. <laughs> I mean, I ran out almost everybody. Really? Yep. Was that just because they weren't up to your standards of cooking and attitude? No, nobody was up to my standards at all. They're terrible. All of them. And Did they have any training? Or these yeah, just they had people? training. They had training. But, but lousy the training. Yeah, but the, and the mindset. The mindset's weak. I mean, either a victim of circumstance or you change the circumstances. Either the, either the thing's seasoned, the meat's seasoned, and medium rare. It's not, bro. Period. End Period. Of story. I don't know if there's any confusion. There's no gray area here. <laughs> so we, you know, and I was a little bit abrasive. A lot, a lot of the hotel culture is um, is a little bit different than that. And, but I had different uh, goals. You know, I wanted to make sure that whatever I was associated with was top top shelf. And this was still part of an opening, which we had a brand new restaurant at the time that never hit. Never, no one ever came, but it was okay. I thought it was going to be a little bit better than what it was, but it wasn't. And Again, that's okay. there's another one that just misses. You never just know. Misses. It's Time okay. and place. Man, it's just, just okay. Time. But the food was great. Our eternal reviews were probably top five uh, in the company, so that was great. So we're doing something right there. And uh, I had good relationships with the director's operations and the general manager. And the executive chef. So again, they were able to help and work with me. You know, the GM used to call me the big cigar. He used to be a, <laughs> <laughs> he's such an asshole. But um, I liked him. I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from people that weren't chefs. I learned a lot from people that um, didn't have that type of drive and mentality. And I knew that was required at a particular time if I was going to be successful in running a restaurant independently. So that's a good time. That's yeah. a good learning experience. Good for learning you. experience, absolutely. And then one day, um, I told my wife that uh, I got a job in Beverly Hills, and we could either meet on the weekends or we could move. <laughs> that was a difficult conversation. <laughs> one day, one day, I mean, we have to have a sit down. I mean, uh, how, yeah. How, okay, so at least you've learned something from your leadership experience now with this new team. How do you go over with the misses and say, "Hey, she wasn't from happy." Newport man. to Beverly Hills. She wasn't very happy at all. She she thought that I should be at the Fairmont. Um, definitely. So you're gray and old. So, and yeah. 
pot belly and no hair in your head. But again, if you could see, you know, 10 or 15 years ahead, usually what has to happen in hotels, uh, from my understanding and my time there, is that if you're going to move up, like from chef de cuisine to an executive chef, you're going to have to move uh, to another state or a different continent. Oh boy. So all these guys that were opening up uh, this place in Newport Beach all came from everywhere else. They were not groomed here. Yeah. One came from Australia, one was in Asia, one, two were in Europe, four were in Canada, one was in New York, one was in Chicago, right. and they kind of assembled this group. And that's just the way it works there. So I didn't really want to go to Dubai for three years right. on my on my quest to be an executive chef. Of, because once you make that commitment, you got to see it through, right? You're making sure, your 150 yeah. or 180 grand a year, and then you're you're locked. Right. I mean, it's really hard to get out of that. Yeah. Which is not bad, but it still didn't it, align with my goals. Right. And that's a serious path. Yeah. Wow. And I was offered a couple different. Um, positions to to move in that direction and that path because they felt that I was I, I was capable but it just, just was, wasn't you it just wasn't me yeah not at all so Beverly Hills here we come Beverly like Hills here we, yeah, yeah, like, yeah exactly exactly and I knew at that particular time so I have I have a great a great uh, track record so far I'm building a resume and a story that somebody could could definitely have an easy hire with me versus anybody else right so now, I now, have now that's is the 208. Toy at Redale. And then, you know, that wasn't the job I really wanted, but it was... A stepping stone? Stepping stone. So it was an executive chef, ex, executive chef position. Okay. Okay, so that's the first one. That's very important. That's a box the, checker. Boom. Yeah, boom. Check off that box. The area, Beverly Hills, check. Right. And then... Because it sounds silly, but it's different than West Hollywood. You're, yeah. you're cooking in Beverly Hills. Exactly. On Rodeo. So, again, so those, those two factors are pretty darn important. And I thought, well... As long as I got that title, I got this area. I just need to kind of get in there. Once I'm in that environment, once I'm in that location, uh, I'll do some events. I'll reconnect with some of the guys that right. I haven't seen for a while, and then something will lead to something else. Definitely. Wow. Was, was that time good there? Um, time was great there. Time was great. I think I spent about two and a half years there. I learned a ton from from an ownership's perspective. I got in the position now where we're doing P&Ls, we're um, doing inventory, and everything's kind of riding on um, me and my management from that position. Um, I know that they're paying $40,000 a year at that particular time for that space, and which is very, very small compared to a couple other places. Wow. That was huge. Um, they're, they're making some good coin there. But um, a little uh, precursor to that was it was kind of another guy who had a lot of money wanted to open up a restaurant. Uh, so it was a perfect situation for me because they wanted to rely on a guy who had expertise. Now... A little background, this guy was named Mr. Rickless, and Mr. Rickless was noted as a first corporate raider. He came from Israel, he's a Jewish Israeli, okay. hardcore guy, liked him a lot, had a lot of money, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, big equity shares in Carnival Cruise Lines and Cartier, and had his own private jets. He was, made, he was uh, married to Pia Zadora, and Pia Zadora was this amazing playmate at the time. Right. And he named it Pia Rodeo. 
So. Oh boy. So. Uh. Yeah. Oh boy's right. So he used to travel with a security group, and one of his head of security was now a partner in this restaurant after they broke up. So they broke up, they divorced. Uh-huh, of course. Instead of Pia Rodeo, now they name it 208 Rodeo. But Mr. Rickless is still kind of on the around. And what I found out was it was a little bit different of a partnership than most. But my, you know, his head of security, which now runs uh, this restaurant, ended up uh, owning or the majority owner of Wood Ranch Barbecues too. Okay. So they had bigger restaurants and chains. They were into jeans. They were into real estate. They are into real estate development. This is the first kind of guy that I've been very, very close to. This guy, Michael Rulicek, that was kind of a disciple of Mr. Rickless. And um, just a whole different approach yeah. to business. He's I mean, this guy, this guy was living in Beverly Hills and... Um, I mean, he's living a great lifestyle, living a great lifestyle. He was a hard worker, uh, very family oriented, very grounded, didn't get too far ahead of what was right in front of him. Right. And uh, he was a grinder. Um, him and his wife were, were amazing people to be around for that particular time. And I learned a lot from them because no matter how much profit they were having, they, you know, still barely could rub two nickels together. It wasn't enough. <laughs> it wasn't enough. And it was never enough. And, you know, at first it was a shock. And, you know, it's kind of, uh, it weighs down on you because, you know, you never think anything's good enough. But um, it really served me well when you kind of get into their roles and you're on their side of the table. Very, very important. Yeah. Now, is this at the time you're doing the dinner parties? No. So I, so about dinner parties are previous. No, dinner parties are moving forward. So I'm kind of growing restless and uh, I think we've hit our kind of peak here. Uh, And I'll give you, I'll give you a, a story that was interesting that I made a mistake with. So I moved my wife to Culver City and, um, Michael at the time didn't tell me he was going to fire his executive chef. Okay. So I come in as the executive chef that he told me about, but there's still an executive chef that's cooking. Oh, hello. This and is he, awkward. This is really awkward. So I so we make this big move and he goes, "Listen, Joseph, you tell me the time." And then I fire him, no problem. But you, just learn with him, you know, see what he does. I go, okay. And I'm thinking back to myself, what the hell did I just do? You know, how big of a mistake did I just make? You sound like you just stepped in it really good. Yeah, stepped in it Not, really but good. But you don't know any better. You don't know he's doing that. Didn't know he was doing that at all. So... <laughs> So, you know, Michael was a man of his word, but I had to, I had to basically fire the executive chef that I guess I was with him for two or three weeks. You know, on a side note, this guy was drinking during the day. Okay. So Mike, Michael was right on him. Michael's judgment was right. Do you think maybe he was drinking because of Michael? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. I thought, holy There's shit. Certain- I thought, oh my God. <laughs> Oh my God! What I did have I do? Alcoholism in my future. Yeah, I worked exactly. here too long. Well, you know, he was asking me for uh, board and champagnes, like, uh, like prior to lunch, and I was like, uh, Nah, man, uh, I'm okay, thanks, man. <laughs> you know, and there's all that. You know, those are usually never the highest achievers, man. You kind of cloud your judgment with oh, drugs or, yeah. or the alcohol, especially if you're thinking you're going to function well. It's not going to be any any good at all. So, thank God he came through with his word. I mean, I was I was, and I couldn't tell my wife at the time because I mean that was a big big mistake. So I didn't sleep for about two 
two or three weeks, man. Yeah. That's good for the uh, body. Yeah, that's good. But everything worked out. It always does. And um, he was a man of his word. So it was great. It was great at that particular time to understand their mentality because I've mirrored it there. You took some of their practices and applied it to you. That's good. And then the dinner parties, the dinner parties were kind of just grown out of frustration because it kind of hit a ceiling. And uh, I wanted to do something independent. I knew I needed to do something independent. I thought maybe I could have somebody as an investor in some capacity. And uh, maybe this would be a good way to do it. And is that, a, is that a, a common practice for chefs to have little dinner parties? No, um, but there was a group of people I used to do charity events with. And there was a guy who had, uh, it's, so, it's so bad. There, there was a guy who started a restaurant in his apartment. Because I saw a documentary about a guy in Chicago that was doing that, and then he tried to open up, he opened up a restaurant and he got a Michelin star. Oh, great. And, and, but it was, I thought. Wait, what, I, ta- what time frame? Oh, 10, 10 years ago or so. I saw it on Netflix. I'd have to find it. So but, this was about 15 years ago. There's an Asian couple that did this, and they ended up, uh, getting a restaurant um, um, and it was open for about seven years but I thought it was just cool I thought it was hip I thought it was fresh I thought it was a great story at the foundation because right. it was completely unique and I thought it'd be very attractive from a, a marketing perspective and just kind of a kind of a renegade sure you know I thought it was very attractive yeah. um, so I kind of went into that and then I got a phone call one day that um Bastide was opening back up, and if you're available for uh, some kind of cooking. Now, had they been shut down? Is that what they were? Yeah, so Joe Pick, uh, uh, obviously an infamous commercial director, right. uh, movie director. He has about $3.2 million of wine in his cellar. That's all. And he wants a place to drink it again. Just to kind of give you, a, you know, right. a perspective. Yeah. Yeah. The restaurant industry has some unbelievable characters. Yeah, man. Unbelievable. <laughs> the people you don't know about, the front men. Yeah. The, just the characters inside. It's unbelievable. Yeah, exactly. So I, I need a place to drink my wine. You need a place to drink my wine. And, His house um, wasn't enough. Needed a restaurant. Well, he lived in, uh, he had two properties. I think he had one in Venice and he lived in Madonna's old home. And then um, a place in Aspen, place in Paris. And, um, you know, he lived in an extreme, extreme lifestyle. Yeah. You know, he was one of the hardest workers I've been around. Same thing with Michael. There's a lot of consistencies with these guys. They're up in the morning. They're up at night. Grinding, mind, working, yeah, never stopping. And he didn't, you know, Joe probably didn't have to work. I mean, Joe, but, Joe's got enough money, right. so he didn't have to work. Well, if you got $2 million in wine, you've, you're doing yeah. good. You're, and he could be on a beach hanging out, but that wasn't his position. That wasn't his intention or motivation. So, you know, um, he was a hard worker. He was the most well, well-cultured individual I've ever met in my whole life. Wow. Um, you know, he could talk about architecture, art, photography. He could talk just about anything, and he is the most highly educated guy I've ever talked with. Ever. So you get this phone call. Hey, what'd you want to from? Come uh, on, yeah, come on from, in. From um, not from him, but from recruiter? some yeah, some recruiter. Some recruiter kind of. I was recommended by somebody within my past. Again, the network. Yeah, and um, this Joseph's I, a good guy. Let's yeah, give him a call. Give him a call. And uh, I said, dude, this is it. My time. So what I did was uh, I was at Two White Redale, and then they said, well, can you come in tomorrow? Come in tomorrow. 
And I was like, yeah. Well, a whole 24 hours. Gee, thanks for that. Yeah, no problem. No problem. I'll be there. And I thought, holy shit, what am I going to do? And they said, well, we don't have any food. Can you bring food? And I said, no problem. And they're like, well, we don't have any cooking like stuff, but like maybe you, because they're not restaurant people. They just thought that you, you show up as a chef with all your food and all your equipment, right. and then you cook them a bounty of plentiful stuff. Because you always bring a, your oven of course, with you. Of course, all that shit. Yeah, all the copper pans and the whisks yeah. and the yeah. burr mixers and all that stuff. They're always in the trunk of the car. Always. Ready, Ready to, to go. go. <laughs> so it was kind of unique. That was a big, big challenge because I didn't have any food and I didn't have most of the equipment. So well, I, why would you? That's the crazy thing. But people- do, you, uh, do you, and the thing is, you can't tell them they're wrong. Right. You can't say you're out of your mind, Tara, which served as his producer. And the reason Joe made a lot of money and can probably continue to make a lot of money is because his overhead's super low. So what he does is he films his commercials by himself. Then he just hires an editor when he needs to, on probably a contractual basis. Yep. And the rest goes right to the bottom line. You know, when I interviewed at his office off of Doheny in Beverly Hills or West Hollywood border. I mean, we're sitting in Frank Lloyd Wright's landmark house. That's his office. You know, when you see a, a, pitch, a picture of Budkus, the wine god, Yeah. that's the actual Budkus. That's it. That's the wine god. You know, a lot of his art, that's, that's the real stuff. That's the real Chateau de Cam. Wow. That's the real 82 or 85 Latour. I mean, there's, I mean, everything is as advertised. There's, there's nothing, <laughs> nothing like it. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. So, so what do you do? What do you show up with? Uh, I show up with the best recipes I think I can do. And well, what do you, where do, where, okay, where do you get your tools? Where, I mean, where do you get I your... took them all from Two White Rodeo. <laughs> I'll be right back. You're just... <laughs> I took, I ordered all the food from Two White Rodeo. And I took all the equipment from Two White Rodale. I, 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 I rolled up to the back of my car, and I went out. But I went out the back door with about four hundred dollars worth of proteins and everything else. Whatever I could, you think you can imagine, I just piled it in, dude, and just got the day off. Yeah. And then the other, the other thing was that I couldn't do it by myself. Well, of course not. So, actually, the executive chef from the Fairmont. Actually, help me out. Again, network. Call your buddy. Hey, you're not going to believe this. Not going to believe this, dude. But I need you for yeah. a couple hours to help me. Yeah. Because they only gave me like three hours. So it was of like. Of course, again. Of course. So it was all real LA. Like, can you do it tomorrow? Yeah. Okay, well, we need this. Can you do it tomorrow? Oh, so sorry. It's, you know, oh, no problem, no problem. It's all no problem. And then how do we make it happen? And we made it happen. I mean, Bruno came to the rescue very, very quickly. And, um, you know, Bruno was following me at 2A Rodeo, and we've always kind of kept in constant contact. So again, the network, like you're saying, and um, we just knocked it out of the park, man. I gave him, I gave him and his crew so much food, and didn't know what to do with. I mean, I gave him like 12 courses. It's phenomenal. That is a lot of cooking, 12 courses. Well, I knew a couple things. I knew there's, it was a highly prized position within LA. I knew that a lot of other people probably were out of the game and if they were coming into, you had to bring in your own stuff, that they probably- They're not gonna make it, they're gonna fall. Yeah, and if they're gonna give three courses, I thought, well, I probably should give them 12, give them the best uh, look at 
the array of quality I can do. And um, do you remember what you cooked? No, no, not at all. Remember the cuisine? Uh, it was my cuisine at that time. Okay. Yeah, so at that particular time, now I know my 10,000 hours are in, and you know, people come up with particular styles in any kind of creative realm. And for me, I, I always was always questioning myself when is that going to happen? When's that going to happen? And I know it evolves. But going into 2 8 Redale, actually from the Fairmont all the way through, I knew. I knew what I liked, and I cooked what I liked. And it snapped at that. Yeah. Some point, you were like, "Okay, this is Joseph's yeah. stuff." Yeah, and you know, you emulate for that certain amount of time or that frame, a block, a time, and then you just move on from there, and it becomes you, and you have your position and what you like and what you don't like, and that becomes your style, and then that's how it is. Boom. So yeah. You Cook it out, knock it out of the ballpark again. Yeah, I was invited outside, and we had a good talk with Joe. And actually, Joe... How was he? Charming. Okay. Very charming man. So he had his terrible reputation for a commercial director. Right, yes, he, he did. He's a tyrant. And, you know, I don't mind you assholes. the Super Bowls and all those things, and yeah, you get that. You know, but I don't mind assholes. No, I because don't you're going to deal with them as a chef. Yeah, and I don't mind... I don't mind guys that are high achievers that know what they want. I think a lot of people are turned off by that, or women. But I, I'm not, if you fall in that category, I almost gravitate to you. And almost because I, I feel the same way. And um, I'm not easily offended. And um, we hit it off. We hit it off with uh, him and his his. He, he rolls with probably about five people that are close friends and his producer. And... Um, it was great. It was a great start. Yeah, amazing start. And it, it was, it was basically like going to Disneyland because you don't run into a guy that doesn't need to make any money on a restaurant that just opened it up just to open it up because he's kind of you know, you know he's bored or maybe wants a different kind of activity for this particular time. And Is this his first restaurant? First and last restaurant. Yeah. Okay. So he didn't know exactly what going in, but he wanted something cool and special. Well, he's closed it down two other times. Okay, but at, before, prior to this? Prior. Oh, okay. And some of these chefs were the best chefs in Los Angeles. So he just yodoed back and forth. We'll open, we'll close, we'll open, we'll close, we'll open, we'll close. And I knew I had about a year and a half of them. You knew that was kind of the timetable. And after that, either he'd get bored or it would just would shut. He'll get bored and shut you down, fire you. So you're going to get fired and you're going to get shut down. So you just take the time that you have, make it the best, okay. and do the best you can. That's it. For those 18 months, was it... Just you magical? know, I lasted, I, I lasted longer than most. Um, I think a lot la lasted less. Some, some of his chefs lasted like two months. There's three months. Ooh. There's, you know, and again, I think we just gelled. He comes from Braddock, Pennsylvania, which my dad was from. So we had a kind of a connection there. I made sure to really yeah. solidify that. And then um, we just got along. Like we got along well. Um, it was great. Great opportunity. Um, great amount of wines and Madeiras and priceless type of stuff. It was just nice to soak up who he was and his energy and um, know that it's not really any pixie dust or magic wand. Right. I mean, this guy was a grinder. Uh, same thing with Michael from 2 8 Redale. They're grinders, man. They didn't get lucky. Right. They just outwilled mostly they everybody. Yeah. They did it. It mm -hmm. wasn't a magic wand. And I thought that was the biggest benefit, you know, and then figuring out what the next step was from Bastide because, so you're in a certain circle, 
um, once you kind of are around that group. And then either you, um, you do two things. You become an employee for somebody for the next 10 years and get a high-wage job. Or you try to leverage it into something that is your own. And I thought it was very important to leverage something that it's, it's mine and mine alone. So you're at this job now. It's the job for you at this moment. What do you decide, okay, I'm going to create this. What's my menu? What do I create? What do, you, what do you decide? Joe would give you very ambiguous type of just a gray area and just tell you to interpret it. I mean, he's highly creative. So, I mean, we gelled on a lot of different levels. And you're talking about a guy who, like, eats three-star Michelin food his whole life, so he grows very bored. Wow, and, okay, that made, that's tough then. Yeah, and the, it's very tough. And that's why people just don't enjoy being employed by him because he's just so hard to satisfy. Right. And, um, you know. He knows a good meal. He knows a good meal and he's eating them all the time. So just to be associated and to have his approval and be employed by him means you got, you're cut from a certain cloth just based on who he is as, as a person. And um, the other restaurant, the restaurant also served as a function for relationships. He had a lot of good relationships. And again, another kind of um, thread in successful people, I think, are, are these ongoing relationships. Um, he had Gatorade always comes in there. Pepsi would come in there. Um, directors, or whether it's Ridley Squat, uh, <laughs> Ridley Squat. Yeah, he was a jerk though. He's a cousin. He's Scott. a second cousin yeah. of Ridley Scott. Yeah. But uh, you know, uh, or the owner. Who's the owner of the Giants who funded American History X too? Anyways, there's just a lot of a motley crew of successful people that would come in there. But he usually used it for his accounts, Gatorade. Pepsi, Coke, um, for entertaining. And he would have these lavish kind of, he'd shut down the restaurant or shut down half the restaurant, which probably makes whoever's feeling very important. And you serve them 18 courses right. and wine galore and just have them, wine them and dine them. I was mean, that he, fun for you to come up with that meal? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was great. I mean, on the spot and every day. I mean, he didn't want to eat the same thing twice. And you never served him oh, the, you, nev you never served him the same thing or his parties the same thing twice. So, that was the challenge of the day or Did the week. Did you keep notes of that? Yeah. Yeah, kept you kept notes and you just made sure you didn't serve him the same thing twice. Um, but, you know, he would be entertaining these business relationships all the time. All and, the time, yeah. I mean, and this guy this guy would be drinking, you know, the eight or ten bottles of wine, the 18 courses, leave with us at like 11.30 or 12, and he would be spraying down the patio at 7 or 8 in the morning the next day. Jesus. Yeah. And I mean, he's not a spring chicken. He's not a spring chicken, man. He was older when I met him, too, and he was probably a little bit more calmed down. I could just imagine him 15 years before. Oh, oh. my God. Yeah, oh my God. That's a hurricane. <laughs> that's a hurricane and a half. Yeah. Because yeah. I've heard stories. I mean, just people that have worked around him and in the industry and worked on the set, and they said, absolute hurricane. Absolute. You know, the thing is, his, his type of style would not survive anymore. I think that's no. extinct. But there's a lot of guys like that. They worked, it worked for them in the 70s, 80s, and the 90s, but now today, no, not no at way. all. The, the tyrant, the screaming, the hollering, the absolute demand people don't work like that anymore none you know but can you get the same results you can sometimes but i don't think at all the time or at a high level i, I know mean, he always hit home runs always right i thought that was all part the, it's all part of it it's all part of 
all the pieces to the puzzle and you look away and then there's that picture. Right, you would think so, but then some people just don't want to work that hard anymore or put in that kind of time and effort or be around, they'd rather be around people that are softer and kinder and it takes 18 months to do the project than the guy that wants it in 60 days, period. Bring your tools, bring the damn food and make me a meal. I'm gonna see if you gotta get you a job. Because we got a job here. Right. Can you do it? Yeah. Well, yeah. I need I need time. Yeah. We don't have time. <laughs> I'm opening this restaurant in three weeks. You ready? Yeah. Let's go. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. Let's do <laughs> right this. Right away. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. Yeah. So figure it out later. So I always say yes, and then we figure it out later. I totally always thought that, that that was the kind of guy that would be in the airplane, and as they're ready to jump out, he would ask everybody, do you have your own parachute? <laughs> He's the guy. Right. Yeah. But you didn't think that far ahead? Come yeah. on, man. What's wrong with you guys? Yeah. I've got mine. Where's yours? <laughs> well, that's a lot of life. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. So where do you evolve from there? Um, so I, Cause that's, I, that's gotta be hectic. That's, that's craziness. Yeah. So, uh, I just, I just know we have a certain time period with Joe, uh, and I have two choices. I could either, again, be a well, highly paid executive chef within LA or anywhere else I wanted to go, or I could leverage, uh, the, the press and the notoriety I have into something that's my own. And I chose to leverage it. And then that, decision leads to a whole different world of decisions now when you're looking at capital and you're looking at uh, being a business owner. So there's a kind of couple things that happened during that time. I decided that, well, first of all, I'm a planner. So about six months before I kind of felt things were kind of unraveling and Joe was growing bored and you all that You could feel story. it and sense yeah. it? Yeah. Um, I convinced him that we should have Burger Mondays and at his restaurant. <laughs> well, I served him a couple before. I said, why don't you just have a burger? Oh, these are delicious, Joseph. Now, he was not a burger guy then, so that not was kind of- Not a burger of, guy. Yeah. Yeah, and I thought it was a little bit hip to, to, to do such a basic, you know, offering right. of the American culture in such a high-end place. Right, and it's funny how that in Beverly Hills, you're yeah. like, a burger? Yeah, yeah. Oh, bread on meat? How dare he? Is it ground? Yes. I don't even know what this is. Yes. This, yeah. this is cattle? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So It's just like the steak, lady. Eat it. <laughs> yeah, it's just like the steak. And I thought, you know, I got a, I got a lot of enjoyment serving high-end people this burger. And it was, it was a delicious burger, but I, my intention was to kind of get take that narrative and kind of expand it into a restaurant of my own. That you was felt, just burger. You felt that in the loins? Like, I see a burger. I, no, I see in my head first. I knew that was the plan. Right. I see a restaurant in my future, and it's mine. Yeah, I'm going to open up a burger place. And uh, Now, why did you say burger place, not a other place, a pizza place, a whatever place? As you get to run these high-end restaurants or even the... The higher, well, uh, the higher end restaurants, you find out that it's really, really tough to make a dime. And they're super, super, from a business, you put your business hat on, terrible idea, period. There's a reason why people um, that have millions of dollars kind of own these places and not your neighbor. 
because they could afford to lose a certain amount and it's really limited to that small group it's a toy to them it's a toy it's i have the i have the house i have or the house says i have the jet i have the boat yeah and third wife yeah and now i want a restaurant right because my neighbor has one so i want one too that's it so it's a very high level i knew where i was in that pecking order (laughs) and i decided that if we're going to be in business for not a year and a half and we're going to be in business for a little bit longer uh, we're going to have to redefine a common staple of the american culture so it's going to be pizza burrito burgers tacos the go-tos. the go-tos, man, and just improve upon them slightly, but not too much. And um, I think we have a better opportunity for long-term success. And if I could learn how to run a burger joint, well, then I could apply that skill set regardless. If we go out of business, I could still get em- employment somewhere because my skill set has expanded. And now I'm a business owner with a whole different skill set, and I'm coming double threat. Or we're going to have a long run and we'll be profitable and we'll be able to uh, pay back our debts and hopefully make a profit. I mean, so, it, was, it was that simple. So Burger Monday was a hit. Bigger, Burger Monday was a hit, yeah. And that's just the genesis at that oh, point. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, I, yeah, it was a hit. It was, it was a big hit. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was it was awesome. Because, it was awesome. Yeah, in my research that I looked at, I mean, it got write-ups. Like, people were, yeah. and, and almost to the point, and I don't, I will say this, as if you cured cancer, there's write-ups like, there's burgers and Beverly Hills yeah, in there. Exactly. And they're wonderful and gorgeous, and everybody loves them, and the simplicity of it is fantastic. And I just kept looking, like, who is this critic that has never had a damn burger? It makes it sound <laughs> like, you know, Joseph is, next step is on Mars. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Him and Elon Musk will be hand in hand. Like <laughs> I wish. It was just so silly, but it's sometimes that's what these people want. And they don't know it. Yep. And you served it up to them and they devoured it. Yeah. Yeah, they devoured it and um, it it all went to plan. It right. all went to plan. But you know, again, people don't have plans. You gotta have that plan. You gotta have that exit strategy, you gotta have your next step prepared or life gets in the way. So do you, so from mm. there you're evolving into burger parlor. Evolving into burger parlor. My mindset's already where it needs to be, and uh, I'm thinking to myself, um, what what's our next step? So I move. We move back to um, Orange County, and I had my well in between. Actually, I'll take two steps back. I missed the opening of Bastide uh, because my son was born on the opening day. <laughs> <laughs> Whoopsies! That was that was a different type of pressure. That was a different pressure cooker. Yeah, I was opening up one of the most taunted or touted restaurants in LA, and I wasn't there. And, you know, the menu was there. I trained my team, and I had a good team. Um, but yeah, I wasn't there. I There's was with no my way kids. You talk the wife into like maybe holding back a day or two. You know, she she always she always told me the story about how I I, I left her in labor for six hours. <laughs> she 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 told me at like I don't know like eleven in the morning, and I was I had to prepare like th- there had to be certain things done within the next forty eight hours or this is going to just go sideways, and uh, I think I left her at the house for. Maybe four to six hours. Not sure. You could do this, honey. You could do this. No, I, <laughs> no. I, I, I literally don't even remember the timeline. All I remember is when she told me, I just showed up. But in between the time and showing up, there was about six hours that were left out. 
Yeah, she always tells me that story. Oh, that's good. But going. But it all worked out. It all worked out. Boy's healthy. Boy's healthy. Yeah. He's growing. He's got all his fingers and toes. Yeah, yeah it's great. And the, and, the, and the opening went well. And the opening went well. So that was that. That all went well. But you know, um, when we're when we're looking uh, at kind of going off on our own and carving out our own lane, no matter how small or big it would be, um, you know, the the kid was definitely the child and blossoming personal relationship had a big big impact on that and making those decisions wow right so um that was another kind of box i was checked in making sure that we're going in the right direction and we had a more of a long-term plan that's great because i was only focused on the year and a half or two years and i wasn't focused on right 10 years but that's the realism of that job you only knew you had a certain amount of time yeah and you know the joe's gonna pull it the restaurant's gonna go what's the next step yeah exactly and then we moved back to Orange County, and um, again, I thought we needed a we needed a story. We needed a, a local boy does good, David versus Goliath story. So, um, I started some pop ups. It was called Magnum Pop ups, and I did it with a couple of local sommeliers. And for about eight months, we did about. 10 pop-ups and uh, some of them were in Koreatown some of them were in Culver City at that time there was a chef associated with Bastide previously to me called Ludo Lefebvre and he was doing pop-ups and he had some successful runs Um, I don't think he was breaking even but he definitely touted a lot of marketing um, his wife is great at marketing another theme another theme there you go another theme she is a great marketer uh, French chef, I think, a wifey chef. Any, anyways, um, she's done an amazing job as a team with uh, Ludo so far as all marketing concerns for any of his restaurants or pop-ups. But the pop-up thing was really a hit because you took a struggling business or a business that was off the radar and you come in there for two to three days or what was ever agreed upon and you would almost focus the eater the eater flashlight right on that spot because it was something to talk about they only they only profiled like the influencers which i was a part of and we'd get eater eater material and we would help offer value to a struggling business or a business that wanted to be more noted from the halo effect of us joining them so it worked out um the agreements with the prices or how would um, the profit be distributed, right. that's subjective on each one. And we were very flexible and so were they, but we're profitable. We're every, every pop-up we did, we made money. That's good. It was right. It was amazing. It was amazing. And was that fun? Awesome. Liberating, um, off on your own, understanding and talking to business owners that are in the thick of it, that their heads are spinning. They don't know what's happening. Yeah, it's you know, a wild frontier for you all of a sudden. Yeah, and it's definitely a different different climate, different environment that I've been trying to gravitate to up until this point for my whole career. So now I'm here, and now checks aren't coming in as often. Right. Things, are, things are getting a little shaky. And um, it was very uh, rewarding to kind of take that next step and to figure out who I needed to be and surround myself with. So was that was there- the first step. Was there ever a time you started to look back at sales? Because you can look back at that and go, oh, well, I know. 
yeah. she's there. Yeah, exactly. She's, um, you know, I can put my arms around her and I can get 60 <laughs> grand in a car in four days. And Yeah, that wasn't the motivation. Okay. That wasn't the motivation because at all. it popped up before, so it, it always, it's always there. It's always there. I know. I know. You know, it's scary. Well, once you step in it, you kind of go, that well, was nice then. Well, Bastide actually paid me a, you know, Bastide was paying me a salary that it, I just never, I never had in my whole life. It was a six-figure salary, so sure. it was nice, man. Plus benefits, and uh, it was, it was, it was great. And then right. all that's gone. Right, all that's gone. Yeah. So that's why she starts to look good again. Like, I know. oh man, I know. a gas card and Wonder Forge <laughs> County still available. You know. Exactly. You know, I think if you let that thought creep in. It will, it will definitely take over. So, sure. Um, so you kept it out of your mind. Kept it out of Not my mind. Not going back. Not going back. That's it. No option. Forging. Forging, yeah. forging. Plan A. Right. Plan A. Right. That's it. Because if Lewis and Clark said, hey, let's just swing left and go to Mexico, <laughs> <laughs> they never find Oregon. They're they would have like, never found yeah, Oregon at all. Baja's awesome. Water's warm. <laughs> Doesn't Water's rain is warm. <laughs> yeah. You know? Exactly. So just keep going ahead. Yeah. So plan A. So we just executed plan A. Um, but again, at that particular time now, um, I've got introduced to business owners. We've sat down and talked to business owners. We've heard their stories. Um, we're off on our own, so that's a different type of respect and a different type of uh, pecking order that you're in because now you've, you're in a whole different world. Um, and I've actively tried to be around business owners now and not chefs. Okay. Chefs are... Um, to me, not the guys I need to be around. Uh, I'm looking at chefs a little bit differently, almost feeling bad for most of them and thinking that they're just completely off basis on every possible aspect of running a business. Right, I mean, we talked about this before in the podcast. The business side is so very important in the restaurant industry or just in life in general. And where are these chefs getting any of this experience other than crashing and burning? Crashing and burning. And the thing is, it's not their product. It's probably their business acumen or lack thereof. Right. The model even before they even started to put a sauce on a pan. Like, bad location, bad choice of timing, bad time of the year, too big a staff, too small a staff. I mean, you can go on and on and on. On and on and on about those. And we joke that if, you know, most schools taught business beforehand, yeah. there would half of your enrollment would be out. But where will these guys come and get this experience before you just watch so many restaurants die on the vine? How did you get it? Um, I, I So, uh, again, uh, I think if I look back at it now, I was doing my last pop-up and I ran out of sea urchin and hamachi. And there was a... F- that happens to me all the time, yeah. by the way. <laughs> and just the other day, I was like... Damn it! <laughs> More yeah. sea urchins. Uh, and, and I think I think some farm-raised caviar was on there too. And I reached out to this guy who was a a, a degree or two of separation, Jeff Moore. And Jeff Moore owned a seafood company, and um, we got to talking. So I ended up talking to him, got the fish that I needed at the time. But we ended up talking for about two hours. And this guy had a boardroom which was a, more of a mastermind group. And they had about 45 different, either business owners, small, mid-size, and then a, a wannabe entrepreneurs that I was. And um, you got to all meet for free. It was just kind of out of passion at his um, place in Fullerton. It was um, 
at the business itself. He had closed down the business at six and everyone would go home and he would have everybody there at like seven, seven to eight thirty. And um, that was my introduction to finding out what it really took to run a business. And I was in a whole different group of people and I think I mirrored and understood their positions and applied it to my business right away. Um, and we all went through the same things, um, whether it's to gain more sales, increase prof- profitability, keep teams for longer, and then marketing. You know, if you reduced it all down, it's all really the same. It's just applying it in different marketplaces. And every person, I think, in that room offered some type of idea and or service to my start going into being a business owner. I think it was, I think it was fate and luck. Right. Well, you put yourself in the right position yeah. and around the right people. Yes. They gave you the really honest, true advice and didn't mislead you and be like, ah, oh, yeah, you can do this, Joe. It's easy. So, and then there's a couple others. So, and you know, that step led to, um, that lets, that, that, that led to me being able to talk that language. So, right, and, and you then, need it. And then once you can talk that language, and then you're, you're, you're putting yourself out there, and we're, we're, we're with the first step of Burger Parlor, uh, which is the pop-up phase, um, which I was only able to do based on the pop-ups that I had. So I had, I had a good run with the pop-ups, about eight, and I'm thinking... This can not only go on for so long. I'm gonna to have to. I'm gonna to have to generate some income somewhere. Right. And I, we moved back for my family. My son was, you know, uh, really, about seven months. I think, eight months. No, 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 not seven, eight months. It was like a year, year and a half, because he was born. So a year and a half into it, two years anyway. He's a small boy. Um, we decided to go to back to Fullerton. I moved back to Brea, which is Orange County. And um, I ate breakfast at a small breakfast place and um, just talked shop with the owner. And uh, came back a couple times. And then I invited her to my last pop-up. Um, this is it Early Bird? No, this was before Early Bird. Okay. And... Um, Early Bird actually came from being at Rialto and understanding that they probably need a little bit more competition. (laughs) (laughs) But but going back, so I I talked to the owner of Rialto, which was a small breakfast lunch place. It was about uh, only about 20 seats. So if no one showed up, it'd still be busy because I can invite my family members and keep a line out the door and kind of build that perception. But I invited her and her fiance at the time, I remember, to... Um, to my pop-up, uh, took care of their dinner, right. <laughs> which was a nice touch. Right. And then I asked, I said, well, you know, I'd love to operate like this besides it's my own out of your shop for, you know, three or four months or we'll just see how it goes. And she said, okay. She said, okay, on the spot. Yeah. And what I did was um, I paid a third of all of her expenses, which was a little bit high. But I just thought, well, it, it's a good step. I'll take it on the chin and um, see what happens. See right? what happens. That's yeah. a bold move. Yeah. And, you know, our first our f- first week of sales was more than... Really? It was week, a hit, right? Her, her week of sales, yeah. 
It was and the thing and why is, why do you think that was? What, what what struck the chord with the community or or the people? Um, it was easier at the time to get out the word because I think that we only had like you know ten lanes of media, you know, through print, and the blogs weren't as fast, and there was a limited amount of Instagram and Facebook, and I think a lot more people garnering and trying to garner your attention, and we had those locked in from Bastide and from the pop-ups. It's funny how I reflect on this. I haven't reflected on this in a long time. <laughs> Ever, actually, really, Matt. So, thanks. But, um, so, they really solidified kind of the push, I think. And I invited everybody, because LA Times was waiting for what I was going to do next, or the register, or any of these other writers. I mean, it's okay, so what are you going to do now? And it was Jonathan the Gold waiting, waiting to write you know, a story. John, you know, Jonathan Gold, yeah, Jonathan Gold never came to Burger Parlor. Okay. I, wish, I wish he did. Damn it's okay. It. He's tough. He's a tough guy. Yeah. I met, I met him a couple times, yeah. How was it? From your side. I met him on a professional level, not as um, having to serve. He, he, he definitely had a position on what he thought was good and bad. Right. Yeah. You know, he's, a, he's tough to crack. I think uh, he's just a tough guy to get to know a little bit more than what's on the surface. My sure. Person. And you're meeting him on a restaurant experience or trying to serve. So. I think he's almost, yeah, on, the, on your on guard. Right. He's going to be on guard and it's really hard to kind of judge. Yeah. Yeah. And relate. But um, I think he, he I think he came to some of our pop-ups which are great. But, you know, some of the food he likes, I don't like. Can right. be honest with you. But that's style and taste. I think he's bored, too. I think he I think, you know, what the time he was alive, I think he's always looking for that new cuisine. He's always looking for that new something. He's like Joe almost where he's just looking for something new. Right. He's just so saturated with whatever is available that he may not be serving everybody as accurately from a, a, an article or a review perspective as I think he should. I think it's bias, my personal opinion. Well, next time we see him, we'll serve him a burger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, so those lanes uh, were, were limited and they were easy to, to get to. And I knew that I needed to put Burger Parlor out front, which I, you know, it's the corporation name that I owned. And that we needed to leverage just as much as I could. And then we paid about a third of the expenses there at, um, at the breakfast lunch shop. And um, we were there for about six months. She but, was happy? It was, it was going good? Um, I mean, yes you were, and no. I think, I think what, what happened was, well, first of all, it really showcased her place a little bit more. I think she got busier. I think she benefited from Burger Parlor being there, which I benefited equally from her allowing me. So from that perspective, it was great. Um, working within another business is tough to well, be say the least. Yeah, it's it, you got to be very tactful, especially for six months. You know, it's barely two days, so you got to tread lightly and you got to listen and you just got to work with others. And I know what position I was in, which is the worst position. <laughs> I could I could be removed at any time. So. Right. I knew that we didn't want the tail wagging the dog on that. And uh, even though our sales represented that and we ran through her sales system, I think eventually um, things just ran their course. You know, she's only going to want, yeah, she's going to only want one person in there and it's going to be her, <laughs> which is understandable. Sure. But I, I, again, I think we benefited them. I mean, people came to Burger Parlor there 
when we opened up here for I think two or three years, they still called about burgers. They actually tried to continue the burger place without me when I left. Didn't, of course, didn't, didn't really work that no. well. But again, um, you know, I, I I'm very thankful that they gave us a shot, and it was great timing. I don't think I would have given would been would have been provided that uh, opportunity if I didn't have those eight pop-ups in LA because I know what she did she went to Google University she reviewed it she was already pre-sold all I had to do was show her a full dining room which a full dining room the food was excellent it was easy yeah exactly so how do we sit here in this in this restaurant where does this come from um I didn't know it was all going to come from me (laughs) I got to be honest with you I did not know how every decision I would have to make to get to this point or even get the doors open from the color scheme to the logo to the font to the website and all the other the layout everything and I did the layout I did the layout by myself um, because I couldn't hire a designer right I mean you know the business there's so many aspects all of a sudden you're like oh i what what swatch what stone what color on the floor exactly just thrown at you so through that pop-up um we we met a lot of people so one of them was the owner next to me his his name's joe from the night i will just call him joe from the night owl and um joe used to come to our pop-up like once a week and um I ran into him as I was just kind of walking around. We were checking out a couple other places once we ended the pop-up in Burger Parlor, and I knew we had to open up a permanent spot. We had a good clientele, and uh, we've paid our dues so far as establishing uh, our presence, which was great. And um, Joe was like, well, there's this other spot that's opened over here. You should come take a look at it. And I said, oh, okay. And this was a theater theater it was a weird theater i don't even know what went on in here half of this half of this room right here was all chairs and then this was the stage and you maybe 10 feet to the window was a green room and it was all blocked off from the front of the street yeah, to harbor from, from the street and it had a blue awning it was i don't know i don't know what it was okay all right. They want to know. Better to not to know. Just yeah. sanitize the place. Yes, yeah, sanitize, sanitize the place and don't ask too many questions. <laughs> but uh, I did like that there was there was an opportunity uh, for a patio. Right, that's I thought nice. A patio was in, and that's obviously free square footage that you can kind of double down on. And um, at peak levels, you can really capitalize on making sure you can serve as many people as possible. So that was and pretty attractive. People like to see people eating as they walk by and they go, oh. I'll go there. I'll Validation. try it. Yep. Yeah. So that was very, very important. And Joe, um, Joe said, hey, man, you know, this is great. Why don't you just come over to this side? I said, well, that's a great idea. The only thing is we made the worst. I, I made the worst decision probably possible in all my life, which I just ended up leasing 1400 square feet so it was just this rectangle it did it didn't involve this kitchen no at all and um, as I started submitting my initial plans to the architect of how I wanted this place to be I didn't take into account that they needed you know 40 feet of 
dry, dry, dry storage, linear square feet. I didn't realize how big anything truly was. In space, it's actually. In actual, space. Yeah. And what was coming to fruition was we're going to have about four seats in the front of the window, eight seats on the side wall, which were just two tops, and then we just have the patio to eat. And the walk-in wasn't going to fit here because we couldn't remove the ADA-compliant bathrooms. So we would have to put the uh, walk-in on the outside patio. And I was looking up materials on how uh, a facet like brick that was fake just to blend in with the other brick that's out there. Oh, boy. And I'm, dude, I'm, I'm losing. I'm not sleeping. This is a very bad idea. I signed on to this lease. We're about, I don't know, the, to get the architectural plan started is another 20 grand. So the 20 grand's out. The initial deposit and everything else is kind of coming to fruition. And um, there was a discrepancy. So I always keep good relationships kind of with people that are surrounding me. And there was a common, um, there was a, uh, this common wall, which was a salon prior. And they shit, we, so there was in between us and the night out, there was this um, salon. And the salon was about 800 square feet. And she didn't like the construction going on in night out because she thought it was ruining her business. And then she found out that we were going to come in. She didn't want that construction either. She was kind of at the end of her, her business, uh, I guess, career. And she wanted to retire and, and leave. And she ended up. Um, her daughter ended up getting hired by the night owl and the night owl I guess mistreated her or let her go so she had a burr under her saddle and she came to me on the day we were going to break ground on the footings and um, she said would you like to take over my spot just out of spite for the night owl just stick it to the owl yeah just stick it to the owl because the owl had an informal agreement that she was going to eventually leave they're going to open up that common wall right and then they would expand Spilled their right into her salon yep and then it didn't happen and uh, we got the paper signed within a week reassessed why did it. it take a week should have been <laughs> i know <laughs> i know yeah well we got we, there's a couple other moving parts but you know like we, the city permits things like that yeah. oh god so it's those 800 feet are just everything right it's the whole kitchen. So then we we open up as uh, an establishment like we should always had, which is about 2,100 square feet plus about an 800 square foot patio that's free. I mean, you want to talk about fate? That was it. That was it. If I mean, not, if not. You don't think it works? I mean, that, no, right? I mean, years, we're talking 10 years later. You look at it and you go, oh, I don't think it works. There would have been a line out the door. And we would have, what we would have done, what I would have done was bought myself a job and never be able to accumulate that revenue or go beyond a certain revenue threshold just based on just the amount of space. Yeah, the space. Real simple. the seats. Not happening. It's real simple. (laughs) Oh, man. So I got pretty lucky on that. Yeah. Bad mistake turns into good mistake. Yeah. Like the rest of my life. Yeah. It works. Yeah, it, it works. works. It worked. But you got to be in it. You got to be on the field. You got to be able and available for those things to be able to happen. You know, if, if you're not even on the field, really hard to, Doesn't to, happen. to get the ball anywhere. What are we talking, 10 years now? 
Oh, uh, yeah, we're going to be going into, well, we're going in our ninth year in about, I think, four or five months. No, what, what is it August? Yeah, it's August. We're, oh, yeah, we're going into nine years in a month. Yeah. Uh, wow. It's already August. It's August, I know. Yeah, I know. I have no idea <laughs> what month it is, day. I have yeah, no exactly. idea. I just wander the streets aimlessly for the last five months. Yeah. So nine, yeah, so nine years, yeah, in September, so... That'll be nice. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, do you have time? I, you know, you're established here. It's yeah. It's you. you. You've got your staples, right? Yeah. I, I love my hangover burger. Yeah. Do you have time for development, research and development, creating new stuff? Yes, but there comes with limitations of having a business that's been open for nine years. Um, you know, f- you, you kind of... You, you want you want to offer something that's sold, but usually it's never really sold. It's it, and again we have such a a we have a consistent loyal following that just continues to get what they get. Um, it's it's kind of difficult difficult to because expand. Of, a couple of years ago, you threw in some like wings, things like that. Yeah, but the, so, you know the wings never sold. The the tater tots don't sell. The I mean I. I they sell, they sell, but they don't sell as much as our traditional fries, sriracha fries, and sweet potatoes. Really? I mean... See, now, one of my kids, he just comes in, it's smoky, he doesn't care. That's it. Boom. Smoky, smoky, smoky. I always sound like, try this, no, try this, no, try this, no. My middle guy, he is all over the place. He's a different thing every time we come in here. Really? I cannot peg him. He's all over the place. Nice. Yeah. He, but he's that kid. He's the outlier. He's yeah. He just eats like with his hands. He doesn't understand the need for utensils. He just goes for it. The last one, smoky, smoky, smoky. So he's your loyal customer, and the other one is wild child. Throw it at me. Like when we got the wings, we had to come. We, so we had the wings that Monday. I guess to answer your question, um, what we did was we restructured the the menu to be more customizable to what they want. Okay. So, I mean, whether it's the protein they want to interchange or usually, and again, usually what happens with the majority, not your family, but the majority of guests that come in here, they make up their own stuff as they see fit. Right. There has been, there's about 50% that order and then order what they want, which has kind of been our staples. Then regardless of what I offer, the other 50%, is dictated. Okay. I don't think a lot of people understand that. And I didn't understand that until we kind of reached this uh, COVID kind of... Uh, period. Period. Yeah. And I've been on cash just to make sure I'm leading from the front and be available to the guests and to the teams. But um, 50% order just the way they want. That's it. Boom. Boom. Done. Done. They don't... Uh, it's just an interesting dynamic, that's all. How have you handled COVID? How I, um, putting one foot in front of the other. Not getting too ahead of ourselves. Yeah, because this is unteachable. And you've been in this business long enough now. Yeah. Five years ago, nobody explains this to you. 10 years ago, you know, at CIA, nobody explains this to you. You're just an uncharted territory. So you're just kind of rolling with it and trying to stay ahead and of I've the tried curve. And I've tried to contact I've contacted and I, well, I've contacted all my business contacts and nobody has an answer for anything. Nobody, I don't know who would, that would be the Piper. I mean, there's no perfect explanation. 
No, but being available to change, being available to adapt, accepting the current circumstances for what they truly are, and having a realistic perspective and putting it in the correct context is pretty important. And I know that's kind of ambiguous, but again, I think it comes down to their correct perspective. You know, when we first closed, I think there's a ton of people that really wanted some time off from a small business perspective. Sure. You know, they're almost looking for the email from California to shut down so they could have an excuse on, right. I don't know, doing whatever they wanted to do. Put their so, ass on a couch, really. Put their ass on the couch for, I don't know how long. I'm just not, I've never been wired that way. I, you know, I've always thought of it as a challenge, especially going through that first stage, which they still say we're in the first stage. But <laughs> I, I've lost track of the stages. I don't know. Yeah. Color schemes, stages, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. My wife just fills me in. We're in yellow, we're blue, we're <laughs> still wearing a mask. They're six yeah. feet apart. Six feet apart. <laughs> but, you know, I think COVID will reveal more about business owners, whether you're in the restaurant business or any other business. Either, you, you know, it will allow you to make more excuses if you're an excuse guy or if you're resilient and refuse to uh, accept uh, that the circumstances will allow you to be who, I don't know, wherever we're going to be headed, uh, it will definitely trigger that in you. Well, I read, I read today in the New York Times that you know, one third of the small businesses on the island will probably never exist again. Seriously? Yeah. They just, they're, 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 they'll be gone. And you just look at that and you it, go, by when? By the end of the year, by, tw- by the end of 2020. They just, because if they can't come back, they, those owners just don't have the money, the funding. They're going to lose the backing because, right, if you're a restaurant, yeah. you're the you're chef. That doesn't mean you own the place. Is it for restaurants or Small other? Small businesses. I know. And that, and Such a gray area. Right. And in, in the article, it said mm-hmm. a majority of that is restaurants. Those little, and if you live there and you walk around... Yeah. There's little teeny little restaurants. Zombie, zombie, yeah. zombie businesses. Yeah, the little downstairs, little this, little that. Like I, I, I know when I go, there's this Lebanese place I want to go to, and mm-hmm. there's this little uh, noodle place I want to go to. I'm scared the next time I go, they're not there. Guarantee they, they won't be there. They haven't be. They won't be. They were shoestring, as it is. They're gone. Gone. So to be able to hang hang in there during this time is a real or pivot. And, pivot. and we, we pivoted with our second location that... Yeah, let's um, talk about that. I mean, that's a, quite a pivot. Yeah, so we pivoted <laughs> to a scratch-made chicken tender place. We reduced basically uh, to chicken tenders and chicken tenders only. It's a very scalable concept. You have a two, three, and four-piece uh, chicken tender meals um, that include fries and some pickles, and then you get a choice of sauces. Um, you have about six sides, and that's it. I've never opened up on such a simple, straightforward uh, menu that is scalable in my whole life, but I couldn't think of a better time than now. Um, the reason for that is just reading in that particular area of Orange, uh, we lost about 28% of our business when Chapman closed down. And I didn't think Chapman gave us 28% of my overall revenue. And the most of that revenue that comes from Chapman is the administration. So that's about 1,800 people that are there year-round. They're professionals. They're, they're five or six days a week. They have money to spend. Usually that's your lunch business. Right. Um, but I wasn't the only one in town that 
felt that. I think I took a consensus of the owners in the area, and most of them said pretty consistently, I think around 24 to maybe 30%. So my bet is that they will not be spending more money or $17 on burgers and fries. They'll be spending less money, and uh, they'll be wanting to receive that product in different ways other than coming in. So what's the product that would be easily transported uh, for long periods of time? And at a value, probably standpoint of maybe six eighty-seven to maybe nine ninety-eight, that would be that would be uh, chicken, fried chicken actually, scratch made fried chicken. <laughs> That's good. Um, but it also it also was thirty percent of our sales at Burger Parlor in Orange. So what we did was we took basically something that was growing and we just uh, doubled down on it. And hopefully uh, we're becoming who we need to become for that particular area. And um, our sales right now, based on the general goodwill we had with Burger Parlor, we've been able to convert to Jackson Scratch Made Chicken Tenders. People that were disappointed that we weren't there, uh, obviously we've been catering to everybody who's come in and we've had them try our product and we're already seeing the same thing that we saw at Burger Parlor initially transferred to Jackson's chicks, uh, scratch made chicken tenders. So it's been a nice transition. I don't think I would have been able to do that if I wasn't part of the community and we didn't have that general goodwill in that area for over four and a half years that we were burger parlor. That's great. Yeah. And I didn't know how, how you don't know that until you make that move. Right. You don't know how many people you affect and actually how much people enjoyed what you did. Right. Because you're kind of getting beat up, whether it's reviews or sure. you hear about all the complaints, but you never hear about all the good stuff until it's all, it's gone. Right. So. I mean, you didn't know that 28% existed. You didn't know what that num- real number was. What a was. blessing. What a blessing that Chapman closed two weeks before they all closed down because I would have never known that. I thought it was probably about 11%. If it was 11%, we would have held through and continue to kind of stay our course. But 20... 28%'s big. Too much. Right. Too much. For anybody. And I don't think they're going to be coming back anytime soon. And my bet paid off because they're not coming back. Right. They're not coming this fall. They're not coming this fall. So it allows me the, the opportunity to do something that's kind of catered to or something that'd be picked up from our restaurant in case we hit a dry patch. So I have kind of, that's my backup plan for Jackson's. Like say we have a down, down week or a down day or there we have certain gaps that we need to fill. Well, get on the phone and see what we can do or uh, we can advertise in different ways and go to them. Right. I mean, catering, you just basically pick it up and put it on the table. Done. (laughs) Burgers, not so much. You need to have a $300,000 truck. Burgers need to be made on the spot Mm -hmm. and everybody has their particular way they would like their burger. I want this sauce. I want this pickle. I want potato. Exactly. And you could streamline that you can streamline that a little bit, but um, you're always going to be limited to making sure that you're doing it there on premise. And that costs a lot of money and a lot more employees to be able to manufacture that. Wow. Yeah. Are there any chefs you wish you would have worked with over your career? Um, no, you know, I stage pretty much. I've worked with every chef that I think I've ever wanted to. That's good. 
um, whether it was through a charity aspect or uh, in their kitchen. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I don't have any regrets on any of that. That's good. Yeah. If you weren't a chef, yes. what would you have been? Um, today, I would probably want to be a property manager. <laughs> <laughs> Industrial. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but I've always enjoyed marketing. I always thought that if I wasn't in the restaurant business, I would marketing. Dabble in marketing. Marketing and branding. Absolutely. All right. Love creating stories. I love all the creative aspects, too. There's a lot of creativity within that market. Um, and again, it pills the psychology of people, kind of what we do in the restaurant business or a lot of other businesses. I just think it'd, it'd be an easy transition, something that would not be work, just be an extension of who you are. What's your go-to food to eat? This is for a chef, too, so... Yeah. You know, it's changed. So pre, pre-COVID, it was Korean barbecue. Interesting. Okay. Love Korean barbecue. Love ramen. And I love ramen. Love ramen. Oh. Easy to love. Oh, God. And then I think... Who's um, your go- where, where do you like your ramen around here? Oh, I love, I love What's Up Ramen. Okay. Yeah. I think they do a decent job. Um, that Mr. Barbecue in State College, and I, I, I hate to say Fullerton twice, but it is what it is. I've eaten a lot of Korean barbecue places, and I've eaten over the hill. Okay. Um, and uh, I still think Mr. Barbecue is the best. And I was actually in South Korea. I've eaten there. When I went to Japan, we went to South Korea, went to Busan, we went to uh, Seoul. Okay. And the Korean barbecue was terrible. Just terrible. And it was super expensive. Really? Yeah. And it's not all you can eat. Uh, And I understand, like, I'm an American. Sure. But they don't give you the variety. They don't give you the variety of meats. It's very limited. It's very high-end. And most of them, I don't know if we were the gringos in the restaurant (laughs) or not, but they they barely even want to cook your meat in front of you. They just so, get you in and yeah, out of here. Get out of here, yeah. man. Yeah. So you're screwing up for our regulars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, moving forward for uh, COVID, you know, I think it's homemade meals by my wife. Okay. Yeah, she's been able to cook a lot more. And uh, how's her cooking? Delicious. She actually, Good you know, call. Good one, call. <laughs> one of she's pretty independent. You know, and Has she learned a little bit from you. Or was she, she a good she'll cook? Ne- no, she'll never admit that. Was she a good cook before you? She's a great cook now because of me. That a boy. Yeah, but you know, she, she never gives me my due. <laughs> she, at all. You know, she cooks, she, we're just cooking on the trip. She made some great meals. The reason she made some great meals is because uh, of she me. She a good executive of me, chef. <laughs> of course. But she'll never be giving my due, man. Never. But um, she's definitely learned a lot. Her, her, her food's amazing now. And uh, she has learned a lot. She won't give me my due, which is okay. But um, I'm a beef I'm a beef stroganoff guy and breaded round steak. Ooh. Yeah. That's good. I love beef stroganoff. It's my favorite. And then she's moved in the breaded round steak, which is like an old stool, like low brow meal. And um, fried potatoes and ketchup. Delicious. That's great. Yeah, I wish I had better, a better, uh, <laughs> more elevated. You know, and steaks, steaks. You know, the other other thing that I really love that I, was, I started buying outside outside skirt steaks. Really? Yeah, outside, not inside skirt steaks. I'm gonna uh, take medium, note of that. Med- yeah, medium rare, medium rare, and then um, just like a soy-based ginger marinade. It could be something pre-bought or something you can grate into with a little rice wine vinegar. Marinate for about an hour. Grill on both sides and slice against the grain. 
Uh, I think it's the most flavorful meat I've had in recent memory. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And I and I do do uh, the New York steaks. I do the poor man dry age. Okay. Do you know what that is? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard so, of it. So I so I so I slice them into like ten to twelve ounces, and then I'll put either regular salt or a seasoned salt on there. Right on, on them. Yep. On them, so it draws out the moisture, and I allow them to sit in the refrigerator for like two days, and the moisture content is kind of removed by like maybe ten to twelve percent. And then it just adds a different texture and a concentrated meat flavor. And what happens with salt when you put it on the protein is it takes away the moisture, then it takes whatever flavor that salt is into the meat. And it will penetrate as long, it will penetrate as long as you allow it without being cooked. Wow. But that's a nice way to improve your meat quality too because what really kind of dilutes that is how much water it has in it. If you can take out enough water, and you can put it in with a different flavor, like a, let's say a rosemary salt or a smoked salt or a right. chili salt. I mean, those are easy examples, but you're dealing with something Sounds completely delicious. different. Yeah, pretty amazing. I wasn't hungry until now. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, outside skirts, skirt steak, phenomenal, phenomenal. What do you see in the future? Um, for Joseph, not for Burger Parlor, but for you. Um, I see more of the same. Okay. Yeah, I see us staying our course. I think um, I think there'll be a good purging, a good amount of purging of small businesses. I don't plan on being one of them, and uh, hopefully we can attract more guests to both of our restaurants and serve them as we always have. And becoming probably who I don't know what we need to become moving forward, but we will be what we need to become moving forward um, from a delivery perspective and uh, an offering perspective on serving our communities. That's great. Yeah. Joseph, I'm absolutely proud of you. Oh, it's thanks, so man. I appreciate nice it. It's so nice to see this uh, young kid from the neighborhood turn yeah. into such a wonderful, established chef and businessman. My thanks, only apologies man. is we didn't get to play, you know, Tribe Called Quest during the yeah, podcast. exactly. But, Dude. But I do like it when it plays in the, uh, in the Yeah, restaurant. exactly. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. You know, this is my first podcast, so I'm not used to talking this much. I got to be honest with you, especially about myself. I usually never talk about myself at all. But you did great. You well, got, you got an we'll see. Now, you got an unbelievable story. All my research. I mean, when you know somebody for 35 years and then you do research on them, there's a bunch of like, what? Really? Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Hopefully we yeah. can convert that into dollars that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's always the name of the game. That's so. it. Um, We'll see how it goes, but thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Matt. Joseph, Love you, man. You're the best. I appreciate it. Love right. you, man. Hope you enjoyed that podcast. Please subscribe and hit the like button where you just